It's going to be an exciting show, Mr. Holman. I'm Lightning. This is the Truck Show Podcast, episode 152, right? 152? Yeah. Uh, if you include our bonus episodes, I think this is 159. Okay. Well, uh, good for us. So here's the thing about this show. It's going to be awesome because we're talking to a dude that you met at yes. around a campfire. I did. Uh, we're going to talk about his, what year's the Jeep? Uh, it's got a 1978 Jeep. J20, three-quarter ton, long bed pickup. Ground-up restoration, gorgeous. Yes. And it's got a lot of uh, accoutrement yeah, yes, he, that we'll uh, need to talk about. He turned it into a, uh, a overlander. But so there's you're, more. You're going to love that part, but really it's his backstory, I think, is what you're going to enjoy, because he was a, a pilot, still is a pilot for yep. Southwest, but... Yep. He, yeah, we'll go okay, yeah, wait, you yeah, got, yeah, this yeah, is I, awesome. We're not giving away the whole thing. Okay, I'm going to... It's right, going to be great. you got to stay tuned. It's going to be great. Because he's he's... Wow. He's got some But before stories. we get into that, you know, he's got some Let's great Let's just stories. say, wait, wait, can I, can I tease this? Yes. He's been over Mach 3. Uh, that's fair. Okay. That's fair. He- I haven't, have you? No. No. <laughs> no. Uh, he has, uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> that's right. Mach yeah, 3. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we're going to read your email and talk about what Holman picked me up in on the way to the studio, which is, oh yeah, this is going to be good. <laughs> All right, so before we get into that, of course, we have to thank Nissan, our presenting sponsor, who has uh, been a uh, a staunch supporter of the Truck Show podcast. So if you're in the- Staunch. Staunch, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if you're- I was going to say exuberant. I think exuberant is also- Oh, okay. by the way, I've been talking in the back- Ground? Channels, ground, on some in the, cool on the dark web? stuff we might be able to do with them. Are you talking about with the new frontier? I'm not talking about- I'm just saying, like, we're working on some cool stuff. So what you're saying is it's... Embargo. Right out of the gate, not right into the beginning of the show. not saying anything. You're you not are that. extrapolating from my, uh, my, my thankfulness for Nissan's support. Okay. And uh, me uh, pivoting off your comment of their exuberance for us. So you've got something potentially coming up that's really cool. I would hope so. Okay. Think right. about it. Think All right. Be, well, I think it'd be awesome. Let's talk about something that's more tangible to our listeners. Okay. Like you can go into your Nissan dealer right now and pick up a brand new Titan or a uh, Titan XD. Five-year, 100,000-mile warranty, the best in the business. And if you're looking for a midsize truck, the uh, Nissan Frontier, an honest and dependable midsize pickup, as well as their Nissan NV line of commercial vans. Uh, check out their vehicles and build and price on their website, NissanUSA.com. And if you're looking to organize all the stuff that's rolling around in the back of your truck or your van, check out decked.com. Twin sliding drawers that will hide everything away, and you can put 2,000 pounds on top of the deck system. And also weather-resistant and lockable, and don't forget that they make the D-Bag Backpack, and also the D-Box and Cross-Box Toolboxes that you can have individually or will fit inside those deck drawer systems. So head over to decked.com or check them out on Instagram, at USA. And uh, while we're going through sponsors, I saw a uh, police pursuit the other night. I don't know if you uh, are a fan of the pursuits here in Southern California like I am. I'm not as addicted to them as you are, but I, but I it's just like anything. It's, I will literally drop everything to watch a pursuit. You know what it is? It's uh, it's um, epoxy for the eyeballs. You, it's you cannot, the unknown. You can, well, no. I once you once you look at the for, for those of you who you don't can't know, look away. We literally have three to four televised pursuits in Los Angeles or Southern California. A week. Can I tell you that my buddy, BJ Dahl, who works at CBS2 and KCAL Channel 9, okay. is responsible for that. It's his Can uh, I his tell doing. you why? why? It's his doing. Because we had always joked on the morning show that I worked at for years that we would even stop. We would cut to break early. Like, we would go to a commercial so we could watch television if there was a high-speed Absolutely. pursuit. Absolutely. We don't even care about talking to listeners. We would rather watch the high-speed pursuit. I literally subscribe to multiple outlets. So when there's a pursuit that's happening, I usually get four or five notifications just to make sure I don't miss it. So BJ leaves working for CBS Radio and goes to work for CBS Television. And he's there in the newsroom. 
room and he would watch the live feed of the the helicopter feed yeah right the the link down to uh cbs2 and they would cut in and out to commercials and that but the whole time the entire office is standing around watching the direct feed so all you're hearing is the pilot you know, going over the the high speed pursuit, and he's just like, "I'm turning left on La Cienega and do, going here, and they're going there." And he goes, "Why don't we just put this on the internet?" And everyone's like, "No, no one will watch that." And he goes, "Yeah, they will." Yeah. So Tens he put of the thousands fir- of people. He put the first one live on the internet, yep. and it broke the internet. Well, it's funny because the other night there's this guy, and he's driving. I think he got up to was in a, like some souped up Civic, and he was doing like. I want to say 120, something like that, in and out. He's doing 70 on the surface streets. He's mashing into, you know, cross ditches and stuff, and there's sparks flying. And his front rotors were glowing red. You could see from the helicopter. It was a nighttime pursuit. And, like, everything's dark. And he's going. You could see the car through the trees because the rotors were were glowing. And there's a, uh, a CHP SUV behind him. Pulls, finally, guy messes up, pulls into a school where it's basically a dead end in a parking lot. And so, you know, the 40 police cars all pull up behind him. And the CHP gets out of their SUV, and the entire truck is smoking because his rotors are also glowing red. Oh, so I see where this is going. You're going to suggest that both those cars needed Duralesh brake rotors. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> that's what they call the uh, the setup in the show business world. <laughs> yeah, but that was good, right? <laughs> yeah, no, but okay. I'm serious. Okay, so the CHP gets out, uh-huh. right, and they have the guy at gunpoint, and both cars are smoking, and the yeah. dude's walking backwards, and you see another CHP officer come from behind, uh-huh. and he pulls out his mag light. with the gun on there, kind of looks, and he shines a light through the smoke, and it's just smoking. <laughs> and I thought. You should go get some Duralast rotors. So as you're watching this, you're like, yes, I know I'm going to bring up Duralast. 100%. 100%. So, of course, uh, Duralast direct OE replacement rotors give you smooth, quiet stopping power, and the design mirrors the OE rotors in their characteristics such as mass, configuration, and fin count. Or you can step up to the Duralast gold rotors, which are also OE direct replacement. They are Z-clad zinc coating, which provides rust protection and long life, and it also eliminates the need for pre-installation cleaning. The Duralast Gold Rotors also have the highest carbon formulation in the market, up to 11% higher than uh, the other guys. And that gives you superior heat dissipation, which which both of those vehicles needed during the pursuit, and uh, improved lifespan of rotors and pads. If you want to find out more, head over to DuralastParts.com. So when you were watching this police pursuit, you thought, yes, I know how I'm going to get into that Duralast mention. Uh, 100%. <laughs> I'm always working for the podcast. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> The Truck Show We're gonna show you what we know We're gonna answer what the truck Cause truck rides with The Truck Show We have the lifted, we have the lowered And everything in between We'll talk about trucks that run on diesel And the ones that run on gasoline The Truck Show The Truck Show the Truck Show with your hosts, Lightning and Holman. Now, what you guys don't know is that Holman picked me up on the way into the studio. Uh, true. And that's he, not a normal. No, no, because when we do, well, sometimes I come here straight after work and sometimes we do on the weekends. This is one of those times where we're recording on a weekend. And yeah. you sat outside my house for just a moment and might have revved a blue truck. And this blue truck uh-huh. may have been supercharged with mm. a particular wine. Hmm. 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 Uh, and I may have ran out with my uh, <laughs> with my giddy. phone fired up 
on video mode uh, shooting it because I was giddy like a schoolgirl. Would you? Uh, would it be akin to me picking you up in a Lamborghini? Would you have been excited if I rolled up in something with scissor doors? Yeah, I probably would have. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I'm pretty easily excitable. What, what if it was a uh, mid-80s mini truck body dropped with a uh, scissor bed on the back? No, this is cooler. Was it? Yeah, this is cooler. Oh, for you, that's a bit, that's saying a lot. Yeah. Is it because it has 702 horsepower? That has something to do with it, yes. <laughs> it sure it's does. It's amazing how horsepower makes everything better. It's uh, it's the horsepower, it's the wine, it's the stance, it's the... Uh, it's the whole... Solomon pulls up in front of the house in a brand new 2021 blue Ram TRX. Uh-huh. You've had some seat time in that sucker. Now, we all uh-huh. know by following your at Sean P. Holman Instagram handle that yeah. you're, you've been jumping it, you've gone over whoops, you've done the uh, uh, the launch control mode. Yeah. Um, it's awesome. I uh, have a couple of videos on there, so if you want to check it out and see what launch control mode looks like, if you want to see uh, what it looks like going over whoops, how, how stable the body is. It's really unbelievable. Uh, was able to do... Uh, on a slight windy day uh, at the Speedway, we did uh, 0 to 60, uh, repeatable, 4.3 seconds. And I was able to click off my fastest time in the quarter mile. I think I did it twice. was uh, 12.92 at 109.4 or something like that. Yeah, it's pretty fast in a truck. 6,300-pound truck. Like That's, that's pretty amazing. fast for anything. Yeah, it is. But that's like stupid numbers. What do you like most about the truck? Is it is it the horsepower? Is it the handling? Mm, probably the horsepower. Okay. I like the uh, the Bilsteins are pretty amazing. Um, I like that when you compare it to a Raptor, that the turbos don't light up, and then all of a sudden you have a big kick in the pants with power. It's very linear power delivery, so it doesn't feel like it. It's it's a lot of power. Don't get me wrong, but it's not going to have like that snap throttle oversteer or something like that, where it's really going to uh, you know you're worried about it biting you. It's very linear and full time four wheel drive, so it's not breaking yeah. your tires for you all the time. No, it's a uh, full time all wheel drive. It's got uh, four high, four low rear locker. Um, the thing is a beast. We rock crawled it. Uh, we hit whoops. We jumped it. We hit the track. It'll still tow eighty five hundred pounds. It's just an unbelievable and truck. You can, and don't lie. You've been looking for races on the uh, on the uh, Southern California streets. No, 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 pretty consistently. No, I've not been looking for races. I've only been looking for opportunities to showcase what the truck's capable of. <laughs> well, I, I'm sorry, you're blurring the lines there between a race and no, 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 showboating. No, 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 no. There's a difference between going zero to thirty and zero to 120. Oh, well, that, okay. Well, okay. I, 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 it tops out at 117. I have that on <laughs> Instagram as well. Okay. <laughs> did you see that post? Uh, the 117. Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah. yeah. Fuel limited. Uh, uh, yeah, Johnny Lieberman uh, wrote uh, responded on my. He goes, "I only got it up to one sixteen, and I'm like, boom, my drop, <laughs> <laughs> one mile yeah. an hour." Hey, I beat Johnny Lieberman uh, any day of the week. I'm, that's, uh, that's does that day. count? One mile an hour yeah, counts as a mic drop, really? Okay. Absolutely. All right. So, takeaway. I mean, you were already in love with that truck, and now you're. Uh, well, I mean, uh, I've, I've driven it once, uh, but this is the first time I've been able to drive it in my own backyard on my own streets. You drove um, it in your backyard. Yeah, it was your amazing. neighbors are gonna be pissed. You know, my neighbors are already pissed because the last couple of nights I've had it, I've backed it up to the garage door, and um, my wife texts me. She goes, "You brought the TRX home, didn't you?" I go, "How could you tell?" So uh, last night, uh, when I got home, I came home to change real quick, and then went ran out to grab dinner. And our church is in our same uh, tract, and so we're on the opposite side of the tract from church, which is about half a mile. And so last night I respectfully fired it up, which there's no way to respectfully fire it up when the uh, five-inch tips are pointing at your garage door because it reverberates through the entire neighborhood. Sure. And the thing about this engine firing up is it's not like, 
like a chirpy little, it's a, like they must just dump fuel on startup because it is the sharpest crack that you'll ever hear from a production vehicle. It's just like, we're awake, right? So all your neighbors appreciate that. So I kind of sheepishly did that. I was like, well, that's what it is. Kind of slowly left the neighborhood and I'm going like 10 miles an hour and you know, it's pretty. It rumbles. Raucous, right? Yeah. And then when I maybe made the right turn out of the neighborhood, I may have got on it, and my wife texted me as I got to the church. She goes, I can still hear you. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, a good sign. Sorry about that. So um, having it uh, on the roads that I drive in and stuff and being able to experience on my commute, it just reinforces how amazing the technology in that truck is. And, you know, it's like you look for every cross ditch. You don't slow down for anything. You don't care. Well, dude, the uh, the little, <laughs> little uh, the parking, not the parking blocks, the uh, speed bumps in this parking lot. You didn't even feel them. No. Yeah, the mini, it it literally jostles you to the point well, where- Well, the mini, the dashboard breaks off and ends up in your <laughs> lap if you go over a speed bump at yeah. more than a half a mile an hour. I, it's funny. I've had all these people DMing me, asking me questions. And uh, if you go by my DMs, you figure I have, I don't know, like 3,500 people that follow me. So it's not a great sample size. But I had six people DM me going, hey, uh, I put in a deposit. Do you know when they're coming out? Hey, can you tell me about this? Hey. So if you're looking at six people out of 3,500 that are just in my circle, they must have sold a gazillion of these things, sure. right? I mean, everyone, I think, is having the same realization at the same time, which is this is the this last, last of the big horsepower yeah. engines before Newsom kills it. <laughs> right? or, or before, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, not to get into politics, but obviously it's uh, California. the things that we love. Well, not just California. It's, not, you know, the whole country. The things that we love, if if you grew up on the internal combustion engine, like I said, 100 California times, gets off on being the first. They just yeah. do. Yeah. Right? They want to be the greenest, the cleanest. And that's great. I, You know, it's awesome. But it's just for this, for, for us, for our group of the, enthusiasts, this, it, this it, is like, it There's no auto start stop. There's none of that kind of stuff on this vehicle. It's There's no electrification. It's just a big old badass supercharged V8. Um, you know, the other thing that I was – you don't see in pictures that's really amazing – it's width. Well, that too, but how no, tall it is. No. Oh, okay. It's tall. I was driving down the freeway, and I came up on an F-450, dually towing, and I look over to my right, and that dude was even with me. Hmm. And I was like, damn, this truck's tall. And you don't realize until you walk up, and you're like, this is a really, I mean, it's big. Were they 35s? I can't remember. 35s. Okay. Yeah. It's a, bi- it's a big boy. Go to my Instagram if you want to see the, the video of it going over the whoops. It's... Just unbelievable. You have to stay committed. Like, you can't be scared. For fun, I also took a uh, Jeep Gladiator Mojave over the exact same whoops. I saw that. Tried to do it at the same speed, and Emmy wrote on my post, she goes, that thing looks like a stapler. <laughs> <laughs> so that had the Fox internal bypass shocks, and it was literally up, down, up, down, up, down. Um, you know, And you look at the TRX, and the body doesn't even jostle. And 14 inches of rear wheel travel, the camera gets in this point where the wheel totally drops off and it hasn't left the ground. And now, it's all, up. and it's funny because it's all FCA. So, do you think the Jeep guys are like, hey, uh, they're like <laughs> knocking on the door of the Ram guys, like, can we borrow <laughs> some of that over here know. in our shop? I mean, uh, those weren't when they did the Gladiator Mojave, they benchmarked some pretty impressive vehicles. Mm-hmm. And the Gladiator Mojave works pretty good as long as you stay within. You know, the size of whoops. But we wanted to test and see, well, like, just how big can you take it? Did, the TR- did, it get, did the TRX get out of shape at any point where it scared you? No, not really. Okay. Not really. And, I mean, we pushed it through things that that truck has no business going over. And I don't mean that truck. I mean a brand-new warranted truck from the factory. You just wouldn't – you would never do that. I've got friends who have, 
you know, long travel kits on their, let's say, F-150s, mm-hmm. that wouldn't go over what we do. Do they know you chipped the windshield? Uh, it was not me. Oh, it wasn't It was you? not me. No. Okay. I, I, that was uh, done before I got in, unfortunately. So when you have a bunch of trucks in a row on a dirt road, it yeah. happens from time to time. And big horsepower spraying up ruts or spraying up, uh, you know, just, just like a machine gun of rocks. Yeah, yeah. Right. well, and I don't know. I just, I, I blows me away. You got in and you're like, what is this truck? hundred hundred grand? And you were actually impressed because uh, I sticker. thought yeah. I handed you the stickers well, so you could see. So here's the thing. So when we had Mike Koval on, he was saying that it was under hundred grand, and I'm like, I just for whatever reason, I didn't believe him. Yeah. I mean, I, I realized that he's and that yes, a ram. we get that dealers are marking him up, and I've heard twenty to thirty grand. Yeah. But I also personally know dealers who are not marking him up, and so if you go to a dealer that's not marking him up, I mean, the allocation's probably gone now. They're probably sold out. But that being said, there were opportunities to buy those things at retail. So I don't want to hear, oh, but you can't really find one. There were, there are people who sell and don't mark up. There are okay. good, and, good dealers out there. And so the the sticker, it's in the uh, center console, 89 and change. Yeah. It's an amazing vehicle. And what would you think of the interior with all the soft leather just and, beautiful. and, car- and carbon, carbon fiber? fiber real yeah, carbon fiber. Yeah, I was to see real carbon fiber mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. Every, it's just really understated. It's not boy racer. The fact that it has the, um, the shifter You know, the door panel's a little, still, little plasticky for well, my taste. the bottom half, taste. but it's still a truck. Yeah, it's, oh, what, yeah. what are you going to do? Have leather on the bottom of your door panels you, where your boots and uh, stuff are? Yeah, could. No. Nah. I mean, some of the Rams do. I mean, the big ones. Not on the bottom. Oh, they don't? No. Hmm. No. I, I wouldn't change the, where, your, where your feet are on the bottom of those door panels. You don't want anything but plastic because you're going to take this thing off-road, allegedly. I mean, why would you buy it or not? I wonder how many guys who buy the TRX will actually take it off-road. I don't know. I'm sure there's people who just buy them as a collector's vehicle because 100%. There are a lot of Raptors that have never seen dirt. Yeah. There's a lot of a lot of things. I don't know that what that's dirt. like. I don't. I don't have any respect for guys that buy big trucks and don't take them off road. Well, did you see? You know, my, I'm joking about myself. You no, I know. I, I get it. I, I'm but I was gonna, you didn't go for the jugular. I was going back to my JL after that Eastern, you know, Mojave Heritage Trail trip where the thing was obliterated with scratches, but I had that paint protection and peeled it off, and it still looks nice. You know, mm-hmm. like it's there's ways to do it where you can keep your vehicle nice, still use hey, it. Hey, speaking of which, yeah. I lined up a guy from uh, Ceramic Pro. Okay. So we, we were always talking ceramics, and they were the guys that uh, kind of lined uh, – they, they were at the very forefront of ceramics, hmm. and they have a film they're really proud of. It's a self-healing film. Hmm. So you can take a wire brush across it, literally, and scrape it into the film, yeah. and it, self, and it from, heals. From heat? No. Why? You're looking at it. It heals. It's hmm. bizarre. It's like Where in are they movies. based out of? San Diego. Do they want to apply some to a JL as a test? Maybe. They I mean, know. I mean, honestly, they I mean, know about your JL. Do they know about the the, the uh, lengths I went to try and keep it looking nice when I'm not yes, on the trail? Yes, Sam, their head of marketing, knows about your JL. Hmm. Yep. Oh, might have to. Uh, we'll we'll have to uh, go down that road with them. I'm curious. So that's gonna be a ceramic pro on a future show. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. Um, I'm super excited. I've been promising this guest for a few weeks now. Got him lined up. Um, this is really special. We are the Truck Show Podcast, but as everybody knows, we like food and <laughs> supercars, and, and that, yeah. we talk about all sorts of weird things from time to time, and I think this next guest will fit in perfectly with uh, our, um, I don't know, uh, the how schizophrenic we are about the content of our show at times, where we go off on tangents. Uh, don't be apologetic. I am 100% confident that Bert Garrison is going to be rad, so go ahead and dial. Hey, Sean. Hey, hey Bert. It's lightning as well. Truck Show <laughs> Podcast. How you doing, Bert? Hey, we're doing great here in uh, uh, 
north central Ohio where it's raining outside and very cold. How's it going, Jay? Huh. Huh. I'm looking out our window right now. And yeah, it's, it's about, about 72. Uh, Sev- not maybe, it will be 72 later, but it's sunny. and Although there was yeah. a little bit of frost this morning on some of the cars, I think. It's yeah, a gorgeous but- morning in Southern California is what we're saying. <laughs> and you should yeah. be here. I figured it would be. That's why I let you know. So you won't feel bad that you live in the spot that you live in. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got a lot to get to and a, qu- a quick intro to play first. Don't move. Pull up a stool and share. Pull up a stool and share a, a story. story. Pull up a stool and share. How about you pull up a stool and share with us? Now, first, Holman, let's get into where and how you met Bert. Yes. And, and how this love affair started. <laughs> <laughs> With my, my new best friend, yes, Bert? Yes. All right. Well, we uh, just recently uh, uh, completed the Overland Adventure 20 for uh, Four Wheeler Magazine. And uh, we were out on the trail. We had, uh, oh, I believe it was 40 vehicles uh, and 72 people. And we did several hundred miles off road in the Arizona backcountry. And. Unbelievable trip, and this trip had been uh, postponed a lot this year because of COVID. Should have happened in spring. We finally got everything together and made it work. And uh, there was this one vehicle on the trail that I that just kept grabbing my eye, and it was this gorgeous '78 Jeep J20, which is the full size pickup truck, kind of a cream colored white. It it just yeah, long bed. I mean, it's just it was the truck itself was gorgeous, but then. It had all of the, uh, as Winno, Winnebago man would say, all of the overland accoutrement mm-hmm. on it, right? And uh, it was just awesome to see that thing out on the trail. It's just gorgeous. So, Bert, let's talk about the uh, the J20. Why that truck? And uh, you put a ton of work into restoring and, it. And did you win the lottery because you bolted on every part that we, if we could afford, we would? Well, and that's that's kind of my thing i if i can afford it i'm gonna pay for it and i'm gonna put it on because i buy what is it uh buy uh buy once cry once what is that thing yeah exactly the the cheap comes out expensive Uh, there's all sorts of sayings where it's like spend a little bit more now and be happy because i always tell people when they go well between part a and part b part b is 20 percent more expensive or you know more expensive it's like yeah but down the line Let's say it's 10 years and you're still enjoying that. You'll never remember what you paid for it, but you'll have all those memories of it not breaking and and doing what you wanted it to do. So I, I agree with you, Bert. Always always pay a little bit better, you know, a little bit more for the better and part. And I think what you're paying for is the engineering, not a copycat product. Sure. A lot of times you are, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's a laundry list of stuff you've got on here from the lockers <laughs> to the KC lights, but let's go through. Sure. So uh, real quick, the, the short story, uh, dad bought that truck back in he ordered it in 77 he ordered it specifically to be a three-quarter ton with no frills no air conditioning no radio uh 410 uh gear ratio and uh the non-leaded fuel version because at the time you could go with the leaded uh i'm sorry he ordered the leaded fuel version you could Uh go with the non-leaded fuel they had like a mid-year swap so anyway that truck came uh, bare bones. I got to drive it in high school and college. Uh, they used it to haul trash in later years. And in 95, my mom called and said, Hey, we're taking it to the junkyard unless you come in. Oh, no. <laughs> so I absolutely did not want to see that truck. You know, that truck is very popular today. I didn't know it was going to be as popular as it is, but even back then it was popular. Yeah, I mean, that was one of those trucks that I think because um, 
it was really the the tail end of Jeep offering a full size pickup. It it's always been desirable from uh, from an enthusiast standpoint, and plus they're cool. And the grills have changed over the years. I think you've got the best grill out of all of them. I I love that. It looks like a a Gillette Razor. Yeah, they, and they call it the Razor Grill. And this was the absolute last year they put the stamped aluminum grill on the truck and they are all they're plastic with square headlights in 79 and then just went downhill from there on but anyway so i drove i was based uh flying the b-52 based in fairchild air force base spokane washington so i flew out drove the truck back did a quick tune-up and he and just glosses right, right, over, right, right over that know, the B-52. I mean, well, we're gonna circle back so uh he's that, a pilot ladies and gentlemen we'll get little, to that yeah, yeah. that's a little hint yeah. there but uh we want to we want to stay he, on the j20 he track dropped right a nug now. he dropped that, a nug you know what that was say. that was uh bearing the headline right there yes, it was <laughs> keep, sorry keep going keep going well i mean it's part of the story and i'm you know i'm a very humble guy so it's part of the story and i was in the air force and so i was west of the mississippi my entire career mom and dad lived in south carolina in fact the truck was bought from pickens uh south carolina uh hinkle's jeep the l- world's largest jeep dealer uh, that's a whole story too. Uh, as a as a high school kid, I could go to that dealership and drive any Jeep on the lot, and I did, and I lusted after the '78 uh, Cherokee Chief. Did, but did so you, wait a minute. Wait, 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 when we were hanging out on a Saturday night, and you and I are cruising like Whittier Boulevard or down at uh, Newport Beach, he's at the Jeep lot driving. Well, no, driving what Jeep. I was going to ask him is if he did the same thing I did because when I you know growing up, I got 13 magazine car magazines a month, right? And then you know, no wonder I fell into this business, but. Um, I knew more than the salespeople. So my buddy Joe Cucci and I and uh, one of my other friends, we would go to the dealership on weekends to do test drives just for sport and then like shame the uh, salespeople. <laughs> and um, we would get into Mustangs. We would get into trucks and they'd be like, you're, you're kind of young. Are you sure you have that? I'm like, oh, you know, I just got an inheritance and I'm really looking for a new truck. And then they just <laughs> salivate. And then you just mess with them. And then you'd the, the thing that this is this is how bad we were, right? You'd go and they'd be like ready to do a deal, and they're like, "Okay, well, you know, do you do you like it?" I'm like, "Well, is this a you know, say we were at the Ford dealer? Oh, you knew is the it, one thing you didn't or, have. Is this a five point four? Is this a three valve? Is this a you know?" And the guy, well, I, "I don't know." And then at the end of it, we would go, "You know what? You don't know enough for me, so I'm going to take my business elsewhere." Oh, We'd dude. walk off the lot. <laughs> what a dick! <laughs> that is just sport. That right is there. that was my old sport. Yeah. Sport. So I didn't know if uh, if Bert, you uh, you were uh, had a better relationship with your local dealer than I did. <laughs> well, it wasn't. We had a problem, as all full-size Jeeps have, of the windshield leaking in the corners and water uh, ending up in the floor pans, which comes to manifest itself later as rusted-out floor plans when I went to restore the truck. So it had to go back like three times for warranty work, and every time I was allowed to take it, and every time there were keys and trucks on that lot, and and they all they wanted to see was your driver's license, and you could, they even had a dirt track to go. Uh, yes! What? Yes! <laughs> what? So I drive the truck back to Fairchild and subsequently moved out to San Antonio, Texas, and uh, and flew another airplane and decided I was going to do a frame-off restoration. So in 95, I took every, every piece of that truck apart in a two-car garage and uh, restored it, frame-off, had the motor rebuilt, transmission rebuilt. Uh, put it back to stock appearance. Were there, Bert, were there any ugly discoveries along the way? W- was there rust in places you didn't expect? 
you know, I knew there was going to be rust in the floor plan, uh, floor pans, but I did not know there was going to be rust in the fascia. The I guess you might call it the radiator support. That's all the whole truck bolts together. That's the neat thing about it. It all unbolts and you can take every single piece off. And the, the part that holds the grill that the radiator is behind had rust all in the bottom and I could not get a replacement. So in 95, they had already stopped making those trucks. And in fact, I, the guy told me I got the last instrument cluster fascia that was listed in the national inventory. So that truck has the last, last, it cost $95 in 1995. Could you imagine what that part would go for today if there's new old stock that somebody found? I mean, thousands Anything you wanted to charge. I I guess it would be whatever somebody was willing to pay, right? Exactly. And if that's the well, last did, thing you need for your, your project, right? I mean, you're going to yeah. pay whatever you, you can to get that part. Or you're yeah. just going to put in some D- – D- Dakota doesn't make anything for this, do they? Uh, for J20, I don't think so. But, I mean, they, you don't want to do well, that. They, I'm just saying if they, you have no other choice. They don't make the fascia, but they make the replacement gauges. They have a really nice instrument set. Uh, in fact, my – not to change the subject, but my next project is going to be the 78 uh, Cherokee Chief, and it will have a Dakota digital dash there inside you go. of I it. I love those two. Those but, FSJs but, are awesome. Yeah, so – I was able to get brand new wing windows, you know, the little triangle vent windows, get new uh, windows for it back then, a new tailgate, uh, new radiator, put it all back together, painted it myself outside with single step uh, PPG acrylic enamel, sand, color sanded it, buffed it. And uh, Sean, that is the same paint that I painted in 95 that you saw. With like all we see out here anymore are the water-based paints you know the environmentally friendly ones and they just they don't hold a a candle to an acrylic job like that truck you would have thought got restored last year that's that's the kind of condition it was would you compare this to like lacquer paint jobs of old yeah yeah definitely yes and in fact that's how it's sold it was sold i i think you'd still get single step ppg i it was sold to me from a guy that restored vehicles and he said you want to do don't do clear coat base coat is it's going to get bashed up and you want to be able to fix it and you can fix a paint like that yep. uh, pretty unless it unless it chips off but you can fix scratches and buff it out so yeah so i color sanded it buffed it uh took it to a couple car shows and then we fast forward a bunch of different air force moves and then eventually got out of the air force and ended up here in ohio where i have a shop slash barn combination and the jeep set in the barn i refuse to drive it in the wintertime because as you may know they salt the roads here and that truck has never been in the salt well it's important to uh, mention that all the horses in your barn are under your hood bert (laughs) thank (laughs) you (laughs) exactly so not only that but to get to the overland story uh i went out to start it up and check on it and under the hood was a family of mice and oh, they had done no. gone down the intake you know the cool air intake tube and built a nest in the uh, air cleaner uh and i'm like that's it i'm taking this truck out of the barn i'm moving it to the shop and i just discovered overlanding and i'm gonna make it an overland truck and my inspiration was romer's uh gladiator yeah okay the, yeah. So they did a lot of, they bobbed the, the bed and did some serious modifications, but I used them as inspiration. And uh, the, the whole key to the whole deal was the lightener rack. 
I called Leitner. Yeah, Bernard's and- awesome. He's such a he's a he's a buddy of mine, and his work uh, on those racks. I mean, the forged aluminum, all the different things you can hang off of them. He makes a really quality piece. Well, I'm going to tell you, I was, you know, no, as you might guess, nobody had when you go search for things for aftermarket. <laughs> there is no J20 listing. No, you know, there's. T- Ford, there's tons of Chevy. So, uh, of course, Leitner didn't have a J20 listing. So I called and got the secretary. And then Bernard came on the phone. I didn't know at the time he was the guy. <laughs> and uh, very nice, very. And he's like, hey, man, you'll have no problem. Just get the standard eight foot bed of rack. And he was right. It was an erector set. Just bolted together, bolted it right on. Uh, because it's an eight foot bed, I was able to get the extended boxes, as, as you saw, Sean. Yeah. That kind of was the basis for the foundation. And then I wanted to go for that uh, black, you know, a white vehicle with black uh, trim. Stormtrooper so went- style. Yeah, exactly. I, I've got I, a, uh, a Defiance DMK-22 uh, AR-15 based uh, rifle that's uh, Cerakoted in white with uh, black accents. So everybody calls that my Stormtrooper gun. So, uh- <laughs> And, you know, that's a great description. That necessarily wasn't what I was going for a Stormtrooper. But, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a perfect description of the look. And I've got the uh, Mickey Thompson classic uh, rims on there, black. And uh, it just, I, uh, you know, it just came out. It just looks really good. Now, Somebody you've also wanted- swapped out the, the headlights. It looks like you've got either LED or HIDs. No, those, are, those are LEDs. Those are the JW speaker. Gotcha. Yep. It- they are JW speaker, and uh, that became a problem because the buckets aren't the the old buckets. Were they too shallow? They well, no, they were deep enough, but they're more funnel shaped. So the the and the LED lights have a big wide back base. Right. I started. I, I regret doing this. I was going to try to cut them and make it fit. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to ruin these buckets. I kept, you know, I'm, just in case, you know, uh, you can't get buckets anymore for that truck. So, so I put them away and I ordered some cheap Amazon Chinese buckets, and they worked. And I bolted them on. And uh, the freaking and you saved AJ- the original ones. Yeah, they just went right in and uh, wired it up. In retrospect, I could have used. The uh, KC Highlight. Uh, yes. Yeah, they've got the 7-inch direct replacement um, as well. It, uh, and those are pretty I, cool looking too. Well, they would have matched my light bar, right? Yeah. So talking about expensive things, uh, you know, Brad from Trail Recon was an, another great inspiration. He's got a great channel. And he just happened to have a discount code, 20% off for KC Highlight. So I took advantage of that and got that light bar. And I got the chase light to go with it in the back. So uh, this truck just wouldn't be a classic without a round no, big light. You got to have rounds and, and even better with the KCs just because, you know, the vintage vibe of those, you know, especially the covers, whether you have daylighters or the KC logo. But then when you take them off, they're a fully modern light. So we know the guys over at KC really well, and we've had them on the show. And it's, uh, you know, they make a great product. Very passionate about it. That light bar turns night into day. We, we didn't get to use it on the Overland Adventure, but, yeah, you can light up tons of nighttime. Uh, I expect I expected nothing less than you light up Holman's tent in the middle of the night. <laughs> That's what you should have done. I, was I thought 
I was sleeping. Yeah. yeah that, wouldn't have wake, that wouldn't have woken me up. No, really? nothing. No. <laughs> sleeping bear. It probably, would have heated, it probably would have melted it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> like laser beams, speaking of stormtroopers. So, so Bert, what, uh, what suspension and tires do you have on it? Because it has okay. a really good stance. Um, so I didn't want to go too ugly, and I wanted to keep – I didn't want to do a lot of welding and modification. I wanted to basically bolt on because I was trying to make Overland Expo East in October. So I did some research, and I went with a four-inch lift – and I went with BJ's Off-Road. They've got Deaver Springs. Well, another friend of ours. Well, yeah, great guys. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. But there's a but here. <laughs> That's it. I'm calling Scott right now, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chastise him. Ryan uh, was, an, uh, was a, a great help, but I actually sucked up some serious money because the front springs wouldn't work. Oh. They were uh, They were too bowed. You had to get a crowbar. If I would have had extended shackles, they might have worked. And I called Deaver and asked him about it. And they said, hey, this is what BJ sent us for the specs for the J trucks. Sure. I'm in. There's a difference between the 10 and the 20 and the stance and the way the shackles are mounted. So I couldn't get the Deaver front springs. Well, I got them on there and I pulled the shackles forward and the thing sat higher in the front than it did in the back. Oh, yeah. Did. Okay. So, and trust me, no lift. I'm doing that with uh, cribbing and jack, multiple jack stands in the shop to get those springs and axles mounted. Oh, that's that fun. Thing. That's fun. That's what you want on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> no, it's a Still Thursday got- night right before bed. <laughs> right. <laughs> when, when, when your uh, shop light goes yeah. out. And the wife is going, what is all the cursing out there? <laughs> well, that's why he has the barn. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I went with uh, Rusty's off-road, um, like, a third the price. They were there two days later. The front springs fit perfectly. Yeah, Rusty's makes uh, great old back, Jeep stuff. The back springs were a little loose. So uh, when I took the truck to East Coast Gear out in North Carolina, I brought the Deaver rear springs, and uh, those guys uh, put them on for me. Oh, perfect. So Deaver's in the rear, and it's got Rusty's up front, uh, a drop Pittman, uh, let's see, uh, disc brake conversion in the back. And then the lockers were all installed. ARB lockers were installed by the East coast gear guys. And they put Yukon stub axles and, uh, uh, new U joints on it for me. I have a, I have a wacky question. Your, your fuel tank, how big is it? Cause I'm wondering how far you could get off road. And I, am I, am I wrong to, to recall some of these older trucks had smaller fuel tanks? Uh, it depends. You, some of them had doubles and yeah. They correct. Uh, now, if you look online, they'll say it's a 19-gallon tank. It's not. Uh, you, you're pushing 16, 16 and a half, 17 gallons, depending on how many dents you have in it. Now, <laughs> mine developed a week, uh, and it had already been fixed once. My cousin and I uh, filled it full of water and tacked it. And so I decided to put a polypropylene tank in there, which actually gave me 17 gallons clean. So it's got a pro, uh, I'm again from BJ's Off-Road. I don't know the company. I can think of it here in a second. It's an American company. They make these polypropylene tanks and it dropped right in. Uh, Maybe Titan? Oh, man. Was it Titan? I can't remember. But you know, there's uh, one J20 guy listening. He's like, damn it. If I could only get that information. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. I'm sorry. No, no big deal. (laughs) I was just curious there. 
you're not going to get you're going to get a tank for a j20 if you go to his website and uh and order it It, and whoever his supplier is i just can't remember so yes it's a very small tank and during the overland uh adventure i was worried that it was going to be skosh but i never we never really made it to a point where i had to I, I think I used some external gas a couple times, but I was never. I think I got a hundred and sixty mile range with the full tank on that thing, so I'm getting ten miles to the gallon. And you have what the, two rotopacks on it for, as an auxiliary fill? Yes, yes. And those are a pain in the butt. Yeah. Um, thanks to carb. <laughs> yes. Well, not so. What I would do is I transfer the stupid rotopacks into my Jer- my uh, 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 um, scepter. Uh, to a 20 liter uh, fuel can and then use the scepter nozzle to pour it into the oh, that's such a pain. What's the deal with that? And for those people who don't know the difference, so you're not allowed to have a remote uh, fuel tank that drains that can pour and refill your main gas tank. Is that because they don't well, want fuse you're, or what? You're talking about two different things. I am? Yeah. yeah. So you're talking about when, um, why there can be a diesel aftermarket tank and why there can't be a gasoline auxiliary tank, and that's because of the EPA. And then that's why you can't have a transfer flow fuel tank into a gasoline car. Now, secondary is replacement tank. There are, you know, polypropylene, things like that. You have to go pre-smog era, at least for us out here in California and the states that go by California's rules. And then on top of that, your auxiliary fuel tank, there's a regular rest of the country spout and there's a California carb spout, which everybody hates and is awful to use. So the fact that Bert has to take- When you say the spout, hold on, Holman, I don't understand what you mean. The, The fill port? No, the spout that comes out of the auxiliary tank okay. is designed to lessen the amount of fumes that can come out, okay. and it makes but it a pain in the ass to pour fuel into a fuel tank. It's, which a, is it's a vent and a fill at the same time, and the flaw and the logic and all that is that you spill more gas yeah. on the ground. <laughs> yeah, so they, they don't work well. So we, we saved the atmosphere nothing, net zero on yeah. that. Maybe worse. Uh, anyway. Yeah, so I put the polypropylene tank on there, and uh, it, it you have to be careful when you go to a gas station. I don't like spilling gas all over the side of that paint because it stains really easy. It's very porous. It needs to be waxed and sealed. Um, so if, if you some gas stations, the thing will cut off as soon as you squeeze the handle. So it's really a pain to fill that truck, but... Um, that's why on the trail I use that scepter tank because it has a very long uh, silicone flexible nozzle that you can shove way down into the filler uh, neck and no problem. Just dumping in as fast as it'll take it. And what about uh, engine mods? Is it bone stock under the hood or what, what's going on under there? Bone which, stock. Which engine do you uh, have? Rebuilt. It's the 360. It's it was rebuilt in '95 at a race. Uh, recommend, a buddy of mine recommended a race shop, a machine shop. They rebuilt it. They did a three angle ground uh, grind uh, valve job on it because I was switching to unleaded gas and they put hardened uh, seats in valve seats just so I could run unleaded gas because it was a leaded gas version motor when it was bought. Uh, and then I just ran, I put an Edelbrock, uh, performer manifold on it and just the stock exhaust that's two into one that goes to a Flowmaster. Uh, that Flowmaster muffler is original 95 and it hasn't rusted out. So that, that's the, the, the sounds you heard on the trail was that Flowmaster muffler. Oh yeah. I, I was a tail gunner. So I always liked when, uh, I was behind Bert because I got to uh, listen to that thing. Deep and, and throaty. Nice. Oh, it was, 
very deep and throaty, I, I would <laughs> I say. It did. It sounds really nice. It really does. Yeah. So, so what I, I what I didn't hear is any uh, no nitrous. There's no nitrous no, in no. Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in in preparation for this trip out west, I decided. I had a truck Avenger carb on there and it worked fine, but I knew if we got into some elevation, it was going to be running rich. So I went ahead and spin the coin and got the uh, Holly sniper fuel injection. So the sniper fuel injection sits on top of the original performer manifold, nothing at all problematic putting that in. I just had to redo my uh, pickup line and my return line to make them uh, larger diameter because it requires more uh, flow to that carburetor. How did it run? It started right up. I mean, I look, if you want a turnkey solution to a carbureted motor to go throttle body fuel injection, I can't recommend the uh, Holly Sniper more. It, it is an amazing product. Bolted right on. The guys are right there on the phone if you have questions. I think I had some question about startup. Uh, just didn't want to burn anything up. And the guy answered it and said I was going to be fine. I put the key in and bam, it started and ran. I think that had to be a good feeling. Yeah. I think Holly sold hundreds of thousands of those things. They've had to, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's a, that's a great system. So I, I know that I can go in and program it and probably get better fuel mileage. I'm running it right at 14 on the air fuel ratio, but I'm getting exactly 10 miles to the gallon, no matter what I do. That's what the that's what it's getting. My so. grandparents had a 89 Chevy Suburban 454. Actually, it was a GMC Suburban with the first year, year of fuel injection. And that thing empty, 10 miles a gallon. That thing towing? Ten miles to the gallon. Just didn't, <laughs> just, just didn't care. It was always ten miles to the gallon. So, but uh, also use oil every oil change too, probably. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk. Uh, let's talk your tent. What's uh, how'd you make that decision? There are a thousand and one tents available. There might be more than that. Okay, so money started to become an issue in time to make it to uh, Overland Expo East. So I went for a less expensive option. And, and, and Bert, Bert, can I interrupt for one second here? Yeah. I, I want to get, I want to find out about the tent. But why Overland East? Like, why was there this SEMA like mad he rush? Li- he lives on that side of the country. No, no, no. But why did you choose to have a SEMA crunch of your own, which on the West Coast, well, anywhere where you're making a SEMA car or truck, you the SEMA crunch. Yep. It's the first week of November. No matter what we do, the the car truck has to be done. Like, why did you choose to put a deadline on your build? I because I I wanted to go to East. I was so excited about this Overland thing that I I'm like, man, and they got a huge event right here in Virginia. It's like uh, eight hours from my house. So I want to take the J20 there, and I know that people will see it, and it, it actually worked out because uh, Jared um, from uh, Four Wheeler saw it and, and put it, uh, made a little snippet of it in Four Wheel Magazine, and then that got my foot in the door. But I just, not necessarily that I wanted to do magazine articles, but I knew that if I got the truck ready, it would draw some attention, and it Plus, it was my first event, so I wanted to make it. All right, so it's just, just a self-imposed goal. Yeah, that's yeah. It. you get it done. Yeah. Okay. All right. All good. So we'll go back to that. Was paid for by me, so there's no sponsorship or any anything like that. I just wanted a self-imposed goal, like you said, and got out there, and uh, it did draw quite a bit of attention, actually. I'm sure. 
Well, we'll loop back to the tent now. So you chose the okay. cheapest Chinese tent you could find. <laughs> well, they're all made in China, right? <laughs> Most of them. Okay. Well, I was joking, yeah. but I'm sure <laughs> Most of them are. Because they all smell the same. They no do smell what. the same. Yeah, that's they a all, true story. So I bought the uh, Simpson ARB with the uh, with the matching awning, which I love. That awning is worth its weight in gold. It's got I've got the the big one, yeah. the eight foot, and you can put the room underneath of it. Actually, that's all you really need. And, and by the way, the, the ARB Simpson tent's a great tent. It is one of the better out of all of the soft uh, the soft shell tents that are out there. And in fact, when I first got it overlanding, uh, ARB uh, Simpson was the first tent that I used, and it was I loved it. And I and I saw several YouTube YouTubers uh, were using it. I figured, well, you can't go wrong. It's it's the price is right. Now let's talk about the tent. So that tent was not at Overland Adventure because after my little trek with it, I did a magazine shoot with uh, uh, Tread with Brian. And I did not like the way the truck felt when we were doing some off angle stuff. It was way top heavy and I decided to take it off. So I took the tent off and I went with the ground tent option. So now I have two gazelle tents and uh, Sean, you probably saw the big orange one that we Oh had. yeah. Yeah. It looked like yeah. you had a living room, a kitchen and a uh, guest room in there. <laughs> Yeah, and it just it's 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 as instant as instant can be. I seriously, less than a minute, and you can have that thing. Uh, it, you could be in the dry if it were raining. Uh, you know, it takes a little longer to set the rain fly up and the stakeout lines if you needed to in the wind. But yeah, not a problem. So how did um, you uh, how did you find overlanding and get the bug for it? How you you know it's a really funny story. Uh, I, I'm into, I've been a radio control guy all my life, uh, radio controlled airplanes, cars, whatever. And I used to own a uh, 1987 Toyota 4Runner, a red one, nice, uh, just this, the five speed with a 22RE and the removable uh, fiberglass camper shell on the back yeah, of it. Yeah, yep. Yeah. I, I wish I still had that truck. So I'm thinking, you know what? I'll never, ever have that truck back. So let me find an RC version of it. And when I was searching for RC versions of that truck, I found overlanding. And, you know, it, what what old guys like me would call car camping. Well, we joke uh, about that all the time because uh, – yeah. and, and the way I describe it, Bert, is that the difference between car camping and overlanding – is overlanding and listen if we anybody who's ever been i, I thought you were going to tell me it was the quality of the scotch you're drinking on the trail uh, that's part of it okay no no but it's bourbon bourbon sorry um no so so the deal is we've all been car camping if you ever were in the scouts or your mom's station wagon yeah. with a coleman cooler yeah. and a sleeping bag and a lantern you went car camping right we've all done it yeah. but then it became overlanding and then overlanding jumped the shark and became a thing and i'm convinced <laughs> the exact moment that happened is when overlanding went from being a verb to a noun so it went from, oh, I'm Overland to, I'm an Overlander. And you have your pinky yeah. out as you drink your bourbon. But it's the same thing we've always done. It's just got, you know, there's all sorts of cool things that come with it and products and gadgets. And so for us, like, techie, gadgety type guys, it's sort of like the thing we loved as kids, but more adult and more expensive. <laughs> exactly. And that ex describes me to a T. I fell right into it. Loved all the stuff, but I don't. But, I, I, yeah, but some there was a there was a, there's a disconnect here, Bert. You're looking for an RC car of yeah. your old long lost Toyota, 
and then you yeah. find overlanding, but they're two two different scales. I don't, I don't. You were looking through it's a awesome. catalog, or what? Or you went to a an expo looking for an RC car, and then there's a real life truck, and you. I don't get it. There's a disconnect. Well, so that also, that describes me to a T. I'm I'm going a thousand different directions at once. So, what you see in my shop right now is a 27 foot cruising sailboat that I'm restoring. So, Bert is a uh, is a is a man of uh, of worldly uh, interests uh-huh. and uh, and passions. He uh, is into sailing. He's into aviation. He's into overlanding and off roading. He's also into EDM, which I found very interesting in my yeah. uh, research. Yeah. Of so wait, Mr. you're Garrison. out on the trail and he's bumping Skrillex or something, or he's got uh, some Dead Mouse in the background. I tell you, Bird is the most interesting man in the world. If I could play, play Dead Mouse, I would have, but Dad was with me and he would not. Uh, see, he's like, uh, Dad doesn't go for that. He's he's more of a David Guetta fan, you know. Yeah. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. There, there you go. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Uh, okay, so bird is a strange bird here is what we've learned. I, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I feel like uh, I, I should get into the the rest of this whole conversation. Well, so he, here's the thing, Bert, is that we love the J20, obviously. So does the magazine. And, and we do implore you guys as listeners, type up four-wheeler J20. It's the first thing that will come yeah. up, and it's just it's beautiful. Bert did a great job. Or, or four-wheeler Bert Garrison. Okay. And, and, and it'll come up. Either way, it's going to come up, yeah, because he owns the internet. So, But Bert, <laughs> okay. Bert is a pilot. Now, Bert, your day job is flying for Southwest. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, is correct. but you were in the Air Force. Well, let me let me get talk, let's go through how this... and there's some radness in your history, <laughs> right? So we're sharing a uh, a campfire, and uh, we're right next to each other. We're setting up camp on the last day, and uh, one of the guys who works for me comes up. And he goes, "Hey, Bert over there." I'm like, "Yeah." He goes, "He was a." Blah, 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 pilot. And I'm like, what? Because they know my love of aviation, how I nerd out on anything plane related. And I love history and just all the stuff. And so somehow we got talking to uh, Bert's dad. And Bert is super humble. He doesn't talk about this stuff. He's like, I'm just here to overland. Don't worry about Dead Mouse or my piloting career, right? So, <laughs> so, but, but Bert's dad's like, yeah, so here's a little bit of this and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and my son did that. I'm like, Bert, wait, hold on. Back, back the bus up. And so somebody comes up and they go, yeah, but he doesn't really want to talk about it. Like, that's not, he just, he's just here to overland. So I'm like, well, I want to nerd out with, with the guy, but I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to ruin his, uh, his overlanding vibe. And so we have dinner. Uh, and everybody's sort of chit-chatting, and uh, I think Vern came over to me, grabs me, goes, it's happening now, and walk over, and here's this conversation. And so we had this conversation, small group of people. And so there are people waiting for this conversation to happen. I think They're yeah, waiting yeah. for Bert to purge. Yeah, there, were, there were vultures circling uh, Bert, <laughs> ready to re- reveal this, uh, this piece of info. And so then we go back to the campfire. We probably spent three hours in the campfire drinking and, and talking. I'm like... Bert, I need you on my podcast. We're going to talk about the J20, but I really care about it. So come to find out, and Bert dropped a little hint, he flew the B-52, which is an eight-engine bomber, which has been around for about 400 years or something like that. Very cool. There's three or four generations of pilots who have flown it. Um, and I believe by the time it exits service, it'll be literally it'll be like 100 years old. That's how good those, those airplanes were built. And then comes out, well, you know, I also flew the U-2. It's like, wait, what? You flew the U-2, which is... The spy plane, uh, a famous spy plane. But there's also a more famous spy plane than the U-2. And come to find out, Bert was the last SR-71 Blackbird pilot. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, 
holy crap. All right, we we have a, you know, as you can tell, I'm excited about this, right? Apparently now the SR-71 looks like a, a, a knife's edge, a, a, just a, a, a sword yeah. cutting through space. It's still the fastest admitted airplane to ever be, uh, you know, to ever be made. Uh, it holds all these world records. Uh, Mach, what, 3.2, somewhere around there, Bert? Um, 3.2 is the design limit of the airplane. It'll go faster, but 3.2 is where its its sweet spot is. And that's how fast in miles per hour? 2,200 miles an hour. (laughs) But but wait a second. It's it's better if you hear it this way. It's a mile every two seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my Lord. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> okay, so I, I don't know if I have this right, but if you guys remember, there was a time where the SR-71 program- He just said a mile uh, every two seconds. And you were excited when we were in the TRX today and hit some Your numbers. Your brain cannot compute fast enough to make well, adjustments. all right, we're going to get into Bert's stories because okay. he has stories from the U-2 and from the SR-71 that I think are cool. But I just want to put out there- so. The SR-71. Do you think Bono has ever flown in a U-2? No, he has never no? flown in okay. a U-2. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, so, if you remember, um, satellites came into play, and Congress and the Air Force, whatever, killed the SR-71 program, much much to the chagrin of everybody who ever loved the the jet. Um, and then Desert Storm happened; and they couldn't get assets into place as fast as they wanted to. So there's this uh, this, I guess, a movement within Congress to um, bring the plane back and to authorize, I think it was like five airframes or something like that. And so they put a unit back together and uh, stood it up until they killed it again. But in that period of that second round, uh, Bert was, were you in your RSO, Ocho, were you guys, was the last- What did you just say? Ocho is RSO. Okay. So were you guys the last um, pilot in RSO- that were trained on the SR-71. Is that is that how that worked? That is correct. So Domingo Ocho Torrena, or we just called him Ocho, great guy. Uh, he was a test navigator, a test pilot. He was a at, you know TPS test pilot school is there at Edwards, and a, and and when you graduate, you usually stay there at Edwards and do test programs. So he was a test navigator. And he was my backseater, and he was a great guy. Um, he's now retired, lives in Tampa, Florida, I do believe. Now, your Air Force career started. You weren't a pilot originally. You were the Wizzo on an F-111 aardvark. And a Wizzo is? That is the um, uh, electronic warfare officer, I guess, is probably the easiest way to say that, Bert. Does that make sense? Well, I, both. I was a Wizzo and an EWO. Uh, Wizzo weapon system operator, the guy who drops bombs. So in that airplane, I dropped bombs. So really, and Bert then, dropped bombs. Yeah, I did. Like, literally. <laughs> and then I flew the electronic uh, jamming platform, the EF-111, and uh, through Trons, as we like to say. So, is that the one with the disc on, on the on the no, top? No, no. This is the swing wing. It kind of looks like a Tomcat, except for the pilot and the uh, second seater are side by side in it. That is correct. It has the football on the tail. If you if you search for an image of the EF-111, it's unmistakable. It's gray with a football on the tail. And that football was the receivers for all the uh, jammers that were below in the canoe, they called it, underneath the belly of the airplane. Okay. So essentially you guys would fly in with the EF-111s and kind of blast the the theater to make sure that the radars and whatever other electronics couldn't pick up the next wave of guys who would follow up, right? 
Yeah, so the reason they came up with the EF-111 was because it was a low-altitude penetrator, and it could fly along with all the other low-altitude penetrators and jam direct tactical threats like the... Uh, now, I'm, I'm dating myself. I don't even know what the current Soviet crop of threats are, but in the day, the SA-4 was a huge threat. It may still even be today. I don't know. I've been out of the intelligence world for quite a while. But we would go in close, pop up, jam, so they could go in and make their bomb run without getting shot down um and we had no other protection other than our jammers That's talk about tip had. of the spear right there right i mean you're first guy in and you're like all right come on guys follow me in i mean that's that's got to be pretty amazing how did you transition from the 111 to the b-52 because those are so totally different sized uh, airplanes yeah i uh got selected to go to pilot training and went out to Phoenix to Willie Williams Air Force Base, which is now uh, Williams Gateway, I think, because uh, it's long since been closed. And went through pilot training there and got assigned the B-52. So I didn't want that, but I made the best of it and went out to uh, uh, school in Castle Air Force Base, Merced, California, which is now closed. Was the, was the B-52 just too slow? Is that it just wasn't uh, exciting? Not sexy, or? maybe? No, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I wanted to fly F-15s, man. That's, you know, every guy wants to go out, go fly fighters. So. <laughs> okay, look, fair enough. Look back on it, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I got to do a lot of different things instead of just stuck in an F-16 or F-15 world for the rest of my career. But at the time, I was disappointed, but I made the best of it and uh, ended up being uh, – right seat co-pilot uh left seat aircraft commander and then an instructor in the b-52 wow and uh flew it one of my coolest missions was non-stop from fairchild air force base to japan and back <laughs> oh my god <laughs> what was it like refueling in a b-52 because you have two massive wakes coming together uh when you get behind the tanker right i mean the b-52 is a giant airplane yeah, you guys water ski? Poorly. poorly. Yeah, very poorly. <laughs> you know, we we, so we you call know, it getting dragged behind a boat. <laughs> yeah, I've been dragged behind a boat, Bert. <laughs> I've been dragged behind a boat, too. And you know how when you're, if you're on two skis behind a boat, that wake, if you stay in the center, it kind of centers you up and you just kind of hang out back there. But if you try to go towards the edge of the wake, it like throws you out to the side and off and then you fall down and get dragged behind the boat. <laughs> it's exactly the same way in the B-52. Hmm. If you know you Bert just taught me? He taught me that I've been water skiing wrong oh, right. these years. <laughs> yeah, we both just had a revelation. Yeah, oh, maybe you should stay behind the boat, centered. Got it. Yeah, okay, let's, just get, let's just get in the boat and have the beer. You yeah, know what right. I'm saying? That's even better. But yeah, if you stay, that wake, the tanker's wing, wingtip vortices overlap the wings on the B-52. So it kind of forces you in the center. And if you don't fight it, you just hang out in the center. But it the two most difficult things I ever did in the Air Force were air refuel a B-52 and air refuel the SR-71. By far the most challenging things I've ever I, I can't imagine in an SR-71 because you have to go as slow as possible and the tanker probably has to go as fast as possible so you guys can match somewhere where that delta exists. Was there a difficulty between the KC-10 and the 135 or were they both equally uh, hard to uh, to get gas from? Actually, I like if we talk about the B-52, that airplane could be refueled with both. 
And I liked the KC-135 better. The 10, for some reason, was squirrely. And the SR-71, we can only be refueled by the Q-Model 135 because it had separate tanks for JP-7. And it... Um, I don't know what he's saying right uh, now. The SR-71 required a special fuel that um, had to be segregated from other fuels. So they had their own tanker fleet so that you didn't mix the... It was a JP-5, I guess? JP-7. JP- JP-7. Yeah, uh, so- well, uh, well, whatever they burned, yeah, JP-5 or yeah. JP-4. The, the the standard fuel has changed over the years depending on the supplier and which for you know the navy wants jp5 the air force wants jp4 but yes you're exactly right sean the they had segregated tanks so that the jp7 because the jp7 was like uh well it was like heavy fuel oil really you could throw a lit match into it and it wouldn't light so sounds like diesel which is why you had to have those uh, that nasty shot of the green stuff to get the SR-71 uh, engine started, right? That is correct. Teb or triethyl boron. boron. So have you ever yeah. seen an SR-71 video on startup? They only have a, a X amount of shots, basically, to start the engine, to light them off. And it puts out a big green flame when it does it. And you're going, that oh, shit's nasty. <laughs> huh. So now that it's all been declassified, one of the interesting facts about that Teb it came in a can. Just think of like a pint can of Croil. You've seen those cans of Croil. That's what the, the Teb can looked like. It looked like a little tin can, and it was mounted uh, somewhere in the engine compartment. Uh, there was 15 shots of that. You had 15 shots per motor. That was the limiting factor on how far the airplane could fly. That's you ridiculous. Could fly <laughs> That's ridiculous. The whole the – like, Think of it as shots of nitrous, uh, Lightning. A half a billion dollar jet – is you know waiting on some uh, that was designed on a uh, charcoal side bri- ruler charcoal briquette lighter fluid <laughs> yeah to be squirted in yeah. there yeah. pretty much <laughs> so it, it, pilot fatigue and teb the the teb were your limiting factors and when you ran out of teb you couldn't relight the motors and 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 every time you came down from a hot run which was the Mach three over Mach three run you would pull the motors out of afterburner and they would have to use teb to light again. Now, if you flamed out, there's uh, uh, catalytic igniters on the back of the flame holder that would instantly relight the engine. But once they cooled down, you were you were screwed. So you had to use Teb to get the uh, motor to light. So 15 shots is all you had. That's it. But (laughs) that's that's you can think about how far you can go in in 45 minutes at 2,200 miles an hour. It's incredible. A, a lot. <laughs> I mean, you're going around the world. I mean, you're you're, you're the circumference of the world. I mean, and, and yeah, it's crazy. All right, all right. So, I, I I feel like the SR seventy one is like the cherry on top of this conversation. Right, so although let, although the U two super awesome also. So let's go. How did you get from the B fifty twos to the U two program? Okay, so the B fifty two took me to the T forty three because I was done with the Air Force and I wanted to be an airline pilot. The T forty three was the navigator trainer, and it was the two hundred version of the seven thirty seven, which at Southwest Airlines we flew up until I think two thousand six. Don't quote me on that. I can't remember when it went out, but I was ready to get out of the service and go get an airline job. And I interviewed in '96 with Southwest, and they turned me down. So now I have no job. So I applied to the SR. Wait, 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 wait. What? 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 Why is and Southwest now, on their high horse? And like, now he's know. one of the guys at Southwest who's helping to get the Max back in service. So like he's super important to Southwest. I get it, but how do they turn you down? Seriously, I, you're like. 
that's a, you know, I'd rather not because there's a lot of conjecture, but just put it this way. I interviewed in Phoenix. I was a bomber guy. Phoenix is full of fighter pilots. They didn't take, they didn't hire me. Okay. I was, I was out of 24 guys. They hired two guys and, uh, none of, they were both fighter guys and none of us that were non-fighter got hired. They I've been then, on that guy's uh, Southwest flight before. I could tell his landings. <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> Hard so and fast. It, you, I, look, when I look back on it, it was fate because I got to fly the SR in the U-2. If I would have gone right into Southwest in 96, you and I, and, and, and we wouldn't be having this conversation right now because I would have never flown any of these airplanes. So I'm very fortunate, actually, that they did turn me down, only to hire me back in 2000. So I got hired in 2000. So I went from uh, the SR-71, Clinton lined us out of the budget October of 97. They terminated the program, and I had a choice. Go to the airlines or go to the U-2. The Lockheed guys were telling me, stay in the U-2 because we're coming back. We're coming back. They can't line us out of the budget like that. We're going to keep everything running. You'll be back here in eight months. Well, they didn't do that, so... I went through, that's when I went to fly the U-2 and then the SR went away and then I got passed over to Lieutenant Colonel and said, I'm done with the Air Force and then out. got out. And and wasn't it, you guys were the last crew to fly when that got line-eyed and vetoed, right? You came back from the last official mission in the SR-71 and they basically told you that was it and you had no idea that was your last flight. And did you guys have, was it a photo shoot or something about that flight and nobody knew that that was the uh, the last one? Yeah, so it, real quick, uh, Ted Carlson, famous aviation photographer, um, is coming out. He's going to, hey, you know, they're briefing me. Hey, Bert, you know, Cho, Ted's going to film you guys. He's going to get in a 38, and Tom, one of the guys, uh, other SR pilots, is going to fly him around. They're going to do formation pictures of you, get you on the tanker, get you in acceleration mode, and then uh, fly over top of Edwards and do the circle thing with the airplane underneath. And all these pictures are available on Ted Carlson's website, and I think it's tedcarlson.com. But he has all these pictures available. At that time, nobody knew the program was going to be canceled. So we went and flew that mission, came back, landed, went home, got ready two days later to go fly another mission. And that's when uh, uh, Jay, his his last name escapes me, uh, he was a former Air Force colonel, SR program guy. He was the program manager for Lockheed. He walks in and does the hand across the throat like cut. And I go, what, is the airplane broken? He says, no, they just canceled us. That's how we found out. Ouch. Uh, Space suit, ready to go to the... And so, (laughs) so, you know, as a glimmer of hope, um, they kept saying, it's coming back, it's coming back, it's coming back. So I opted to go interview with the U2 guys, and I got selected and uh, flew the U2. So that's how I went from the B-52 to the U2 with a stop at the SR. Most guys go U2-SR. But I'm kind of unusual where I go, I went SR to the U-2. Okay, so, so I, this is where we have to talk about the SR-71 with some detail. Because, you know, we, we, we touched on it really briefly going how many miles per every second, whatever it is. Yeah, it's, it, a mile every two seconds. Yeah, a mile every That's two right. seconds. A- explain how that feels and explain how you work up to that point physiologically. And, and or I, as a pilot, like yeah. what's the first time you get out of the simulator – into the plane 
and you've got the green light to do the uh, the supersonic corridor, and you hit it for the first time. Is there a sense of acceleration, or is it just gauges? And you're going, all right, that's that was cool. Or like, what's that visceral feeling if there is one? There, there is, and uh, I've flown many airplanes. Well, several. I won't say many, several airplanes: the F one eleven, the T thirty eight, and the SR seventy one that have gone through over Mach one. And it's never, ever, ever a feeling when you break through the sound barrier. It is always a feeling when you come out of mock. It is like slamming, like going down the, the drag strip and pulling the chute, or as I would imagine, or driving a, a doing a test in a car and just hammering the brakes all the way to the floor. It, it, when you come out of mock, it is an incredible deceleration, but because it, it happens fast. It takes so long for airplanes to get up to mock that you don't really notice it. You see a jump in a gauge, that's about it. Um, and you don't really have a sense of speed, just like when you're flying in an airliner and you look out the window, you're doing 500 miles an hour. You don't really feel like you're going that fast. It's the same thing, only at 80,000. Why does it come out of that speed so quickly? I mean, I guess we don't, well, right? I know Wind that, resistance. but it's, it's the friction, right? Yeah, sure. But I just, we just don't think, I would... I feel like it'd be a, a car on coast forever, right? You're just coasting, but no, not the case. No, obviously. Okay. So, so being car guys, you understand that as you get faster and faster, the aerodynamic drag on the car requires an exponentially more amount of horsepower to get that one more mile an hour. It's just the reverse in the airplane. When you pull it out, there's so much drag on the airplane that you don't have that thrust anymore, and it's just like putting on the brakes. It's really incredible how quickly they slow down. What now, you- once you get to – I don't want to get too technical, but L over D max, lift over drag is the point of curve where your lift and your drag are equal. Once you get to that point, that is the most efficient point of any airplane. Then it is coasting. It's like coasting in a car downhill. But – Above that, it's taken so much incredible amount, so many, so many pounds of thrust to get you up to that speed that when it all goes away at once, you slow down instantly. How long can an SR-71 go supersonic between Phillips? Good question. Uh, we held 80,000 pounds of fuel. That's 12,000 gallons. That's a semi-truck. Wow. The whole center the whole fuselage behind the rso and the star tracker is fuel tank all the way to the tail cone and then there's some <laughs> oh uh, parts of the that are fuel tank and at supersonic you're burning sixty thousand pounds an hour so if you hold <laughs> <laughs> oh my god wow oh my yeah. god now okay what's that feel for, bill for, like? all right for, i'm a dumbass right admittedly <laughs> explain to me the engines this is not a a typical jet engine this is a rocket correct i, I don't <laughs> no. i mean I, there's a misnomer about that you know uh, people said it's a ramjet you know it, it, it's a turbojet that turns into a ramjet it's that's not necessarily an ex- a, the right explanation what the engine does is it uh it it's able to capture supersonic airflow slow it down and ingest it like a normal turbine engine does it's a turbojet it's not a high bypass fan like you see on an airliner but it did have bypass tubes and that's where people think that it turned into a ramjet all the bypass tubes did is they bled off high pressure air and shot them right into the afterburner because it's an afterburner cruise motor so once you the way this thing worked is you came off the tanker 
uh, and I'm digging deep here. It's been a long time. I think we're at 20 something thousand feet. You push the nose over and put it in full afterburner. And (laughs) you want to use God's G for acceleration. So you can get the thing up to speed so that at the bottom, when you turn the corner, you're doing Mach 1. Then the airplane starts to perform and it starts accelerating and you're climbing so fast, the air's getting thinner. Everything's working in its favor to get the airplane up to speed. And uh, so as the airplane is going faster. The shock wave on the cone, the inlet spikes is moving, is, is it, it's starting to move back to where it touches the inlet lip. And if you ever get a chance to go look at in a museum, to go look at an SR, they probably have the inlet lip uh, safety ring and the uh, shot cone tip safety plug installed because they are extremely sharp. And they did that so that it would, they wanted, the Lockheed engineers wanted to generate that shock wave on their terms, not on the terms of the atmosphere. So they made them really sharp. So they made a pronounced shock wave. And that cone moves back 26 inches as you go faster. And if you look at, you can see all this on the net. There's way better explanations than I'll be able to do over the uh, podcast. But as that cone moves back, it captures that shock wave in the inside of the motor. There's speed bumps around the inlet that slow it down. And we have a hydraulically fuel-controlled stator vane in front of the mode a front of the main fan that varies the airflow so that the engine won't flame out because it's designed I mean, in the 50s i know and 60s this is crazy that's why a loss of work i mean engines today have myriads of computers and sensors and actuators this thing ran seriously ran off of fuel the fuel in the airplane went through the engine around the hydraulical, the hydraulic mechanical parts of the motor, and then went into the burner and and went out the tailpipe. That <laughs> it, it, it's, it's ma- the engine was made out of titanium, gold, and stainless steel. <laughs> uh, and you thought your motor rebuild was a right. uh, expensive one, right? right? So I'm. I'm coming to work one morning at, at, at Edwards Air Force Base. We had a hangar out there on uh, Contractors Row. And engine the engine guys, there was two of them. We called him Engine Mike. He was a former uh, SR-71 engine guy that had long since retired, and they called him back. He's spraying a motor on a test stand, a test cart, with a garden hose. He's spraying a jet engine with a garden hose and all this dirt and bird's nest and stuff were falling out of the bottom. And I rolled the window down. I said, Hey Mike, what's the deal with that motor? He goes, we're putting it in your airplane. You're going to fly it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Oh my God. Now I bring, I, I make that dramatic point because this motor could sit in a gate guard airplane. You know, the airplanes that sit out in front of yeah. air force. Bay, yeah. Stick. Yeah, this was in Offit, uh, at Offit, in an SR-71 at Offit, and they pulled it out, took it down with a crane, brought it to Edwards, sprayed it off, put a new seal in the uh, main uh, main seal in front of the fan, plumbed it, took it to the test stand, ran it up, put it in our jet, and we flew it. I well, mean, that's scary. That's scary. <laughs> or is it awesome? It is both. It's 
it's totally awesome because there's nothing in that engine that deteriorates. There's no, they have carbon seals. It's all gold and stainless and uh, titanium. Uh, and a hell of a no, nice place for a pigeon family, right? <laughs> yeah, no rubber or anything in that motor. It's just t- horribly inefficient. I mean, you can't. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're burning 60,000 pounds yeah. of fuel an hour. God, see, what they should have done is they should have designed it uh, with using that crappy rubber that they put around all of our modern drip rails <laughs> that turns it like that crackly yeah. black yeah. stuff. I think there's a reason they, did, they didn't do that. Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That's why they didn't do it. All right, so yeah. I, I want – Bert told me a story. And so if you are wait, into – Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no I, I want to stay on this. I want to stay on this because he's, he's talking about the thrust and all this stuff. Yeah. Is, has there ever been a comparison – and I'm sure there is – horsepower for those engines like how do we equate that to a modern truck engine like you're one of the sr71 engines produces x pound feet of torque or horsepower well i can't give you a pound pound feet of torque but it's thirty four thousand pounds of thrust each so that's you know what 68 almost seventy thousand pounds of thrust which is pretty good <laughs> but i read somewhere some there's a but guys there are tons of of websites on the SR-71 with myriads of information. And most of it, I've been to most of them. Most of it's true. There's a few stuff that's misquoted, but somebody put that it has the same amount of horsepower as a, uh, uh, uh cruise ship. <laughs> that would be a lot. Oh my God. <laughs> but but I, I, I can't remember what the number was. Yeah. I just said, but, but, but get this, the, the engine is so amazing. You can tell I'm excited about it. Yeah. It, us too. God, if you could have one, if you could go find one, you could probably get it started and make it run. <laughs> could you imagine in your shop, you some some military <laughs> poor sap sells an SR seventy one engine, you buy it for scrap or whatever, uh-huh. and you put it on an engine test stand in your like shop. You're like, hey Bob, dude, you want, it's Friday night. You want to come over for yeah. a beer? And so your buddy Bob comes over and you open both ends of the barn up. You go, you think we can light it? <laughs> There's a couple rednecks out there. So wait, how uh, tip to tail? How long is this uh, this engine? Oh, that's I boy, I long. I'm just guessing. I mean, twenty I, feet. I want to say twenty feet. Yeah, uh, maybe yeah. longer, right? Well, I guess if you did, it did, uh, depends if you have the inlet spikes on it or not too. Yeah, just the core of the motor is probably twenty feet. Then all the turkey feathers goes, and. Yeah, because you got tail feathers in the inlets and all that kind of stuff. But um, it's a big motor. Now, if you know anything about jet engines, they usually rate their RPM at percentages because the RPM is so high. So, for instance, in the 737, you know, we're taking off at 95% N1. N1 is the first stage of the fan. It's the fan. So 95% of what? Well, of the max RPM, which is, I don't even know. I want to say 10, you know, maybe 10,000. Don't quote me on that. In the SR71, we read actual RPM, and on start, it was 2,000. The fan turned at 2,000 RPM on wow. engine start. That's at like takeoff, a, a high idle on a like dragster or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. And they had to use – the oil was so, – okay, you, you guys have all opened a can of STP oil treatment. Yeah, of course. And poured it out. It's like really thick, like syrup. That was the normal engine oil consistency in the SR seventy. Well, no wonder it only wow. turned to two thousand. Because I'm thinking of like <laughs> jet oil that you'd put in a lot of guys using yes. superchargers thin. and stuff, and it's super thin, yeah. like gun oil. No, it's just the opposite. It's super thick because at the temperatures that the engine operated, it need, it thins out, right? So because of that, in order to get the engine to start, 
they had to preheat the motors a couple hours before we showed up uh, to, I think it was like a hundred degrees. They just put big heaters in the intakes and heat the motor up so that that oil would thin out so that the Buick, which was the slang term for the start cart could start the engine. And that was in the early days, it was two Buick uh, Wildcat motors. And then it became two big block Chevy and they were actually Marine engines. Uh, that they converted and they drove a gearbox and a spline that went up into the bottom of the airplane and they locked it in with a little twist lock. Let's just let's revisit that for a moment. You needed two Chevy or GM big blocks to start the yeah. SR-71. You're using your big block to right. start your airplane. That's amazing. And if, well, but you know, but but hold on. Like, if you look, at, if you've been to like NHRA and you see the dragster engines, yeah. and they've got that uh, yeah. handheld starter motor that they use, much bigger. <laughs> well, I'm saying, but the like the size, yes. the, the ratio is relatively oh, the same, okay, right? Fair enough. That was the most, you know, being an Air Force guy and flying many different types of airplanes, I will say the most unique sound of an engine start is the SR-71 because you get both the sound of the uh, uh, NASCAR pit lane <laughs> a jet engine at the same time it, it was incredible and uh i'll never forget that uh, you'd give them the wind up signal you know the little finger in the air wind it up and you'd get this you know this freaking nascar sounds straight pipe right out of the bottom of that thing and uh at 200 or 2000 rpm you'd throw the fuel to it and then it would light off and then they would shut it down and you could hear it shut down over the sound of the jet winding up. All right, I, I want to really quick go back. So Bert told me something, an anecdote. So if you're a, a lover of the SR-71, you have always been told your entire life that the SR-71 has to be refueled after it takes off because it, quote-unquote, leaks so much fuel on the runway. And Bert said that's sort of a misnomer and a half-truth because the reality is we have to fill up anyway. So, Bert, you want to explain that to the crowd? Because I think everybody thinks that the SR-71 is a giant sieve, and that's why it needs fuel. But that's not actually the reason why. That's, that's exactly right. So, uh, most uh, performance airplanes, jets, uh, they need what's called balanced field length. That's the, uh, the, the ability to accelerate to a speed and either take off or stop. And if, if you're way too heavy, that speed may be so far down the runway that you're hosed, you, you can't stop. So you have to try to go, but you're too heavy to fly. So they backed off the fuel load on the SR-71 to where it had a balanced field length so that they could, and that is about, it was about 50 to 60,000 pounds of the 80,000 pounds. And that's so that we can lose a motor and still take off or lose a motor and stop. It also helped uh, with wear and tear on the tires because you were more likely to blow a tire on takeoff than you were on landing in this airplane. Uh, oh, wow. In fact, titanium impregnated tires, by the way, if you look at the rear main gear on SR-71, they're actually silver rubber. Wait, that's right. what? Yeah, it's, it's like a gray silver color because they're titanium impregnated for heat. Huh. It's aluminum. It's or aluminum, aluminum. Aluminum. It's got aluminum powder in the in the in the uh, rubber compound. Now the nose gear did not, and you know why? No, because I was always wondering that because you think the nose is the hottest part of the aircraft, right? So because, why not? Because the nose gear compartment had its own air conditioner. <laughs> oh my <laughs> wow. gosh! Yeah. All right. Very reason. So the nose gear was air conditioned, and the uh, main mains weren't, and so they had that uh, aluminum in the tire compound. But if you didn't uh, get the gear up, you'd overspeed them because the airplane accelerates to 300 and you climbed out at 400 knots. Jeez. <laughs> so, all right. 
talking again about speed, couple things. A, what's the surface temp of the airplane at Mach 3? And then as a human, how do you react if you're traveling two miles per second? I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing you can do to avoid a collision if it's in your way. I mean, if it's near. Well, that's why it's I mean, so I, high, it's right? radar right, yeah. and everything else. I guess at 80,000 feet, yeah, right? Nobody's, there's no, nothing up there. There but, shouldn't be. But satellites. Well, you know? well, not quite. But actually, we sh- I do want to follow up with that question. Is Have you ever seen anything weird at 80,000 feet? I thought I did. I thought I saw something weird in the U-2 off the coast of California, and it turned out to be Sirius, the dog star. I think Sirius. Sirius, the dog star? Yeah, yeah. At, at 70,000 feet, I was at in the U-2, the, most of the atmosphere is below you. And so I'd never seen that star with a naked eye turn from red to green and it looked like a navigation light. So I asked center if there's anybody else up there with me and they said no. And then later found out that it was the Sirius, the dog star. So, but uh, no, I've well, never wait, wait, seen wait. it. But Bert, don't, I don't, I don't understand that. So we, you're so high up that now you can see a star that well, I don't, you don't have all the, uh, all the atmosphere distortion that you would down low sure. because the air is so thin. So you have this clarity of the sky that you don't have on the ground. But he's, is you're looking straight out in front of you, and you're seeing the star, or you're. Looking- it was actually to the side. It was out over the. It was setting. It was out over the west uh, coast of California, uh, and uh, you, you know, we're we're kind of getting off the other. I'm going to answer uh, Jay's questions, but when you're up that high, that's you. That's what you really. The sense you really get is how high you are because you're forty thousand feet above thunderstorms. You can see the curvature of the Earth when the sun's shadow starts to move across the Earth. You actually see it across the ground. Those are the things I remember. Oh going back, I don't don't remember much because there's no sensation of speed, but the sensation of height is incredible. Is it quiet? Because so, I would imagine the air is very thin. Yes, it is quiet. Somebody said that if you were able to stick your hand out the window at Mach 3, it wouldn't be – it'd be sort of like driving down the highway at 100 miles an hour because the air's so thin. I wouldn't That's, take that bet. No. <laughs> no, just be bone and yeah. <laughs> skin blows right this. off. <laughs> Everybody that's ejected, uh, there's only been a couple people die, but everybody that's most everybody that's ejected out of an SR-71 at Mach 3 has survived because the Q-force, the pressure of the air when you leave the cockpit is so low at that altitude. The air molecules are so far apart. Um, the U-2 numbers are more fresh. So at 70,000 feet in the U-2, you're doing 80 knots at Mach set point seven. So you're only doing 80, you know, uh, almost 90 miles an hour is as fast as the air is hitting your pivot tube. That's slow. Wow. It's hard to comprehend that. In the SR, it was like 350 knots at Mach 3. I, I don't want to confuse the listeners, but... But you're talking about the density of the air. So, I mean... Well, we uh, we talk about air density all the time, but in uh, the context of engine performance. Yeah, I mean, exactly. if, if you're at, if you're at on PCH, Pacific Coast Highway, and you're at sea level, and you put your air, and you're doing 100 miles an hour, and you put your hand out the window, it whips you back because the air density. You're so much, there's so much air in every cubic foot that's hitting your, fiz, your hand, blowing you back. When you're up 80,000 feet, it's like the air is so thin... There is per cubic foot. There's very little air in every cubic foot. It's so like not... five molecules per cubic. Foot. Right. I always tell guys like the air molecules are like a foot apart up at eighty thousand feet versus <laughs> packed together tightly. But um, let's see. Back to Jay. I think it was Jay that asked me about uh, 
refresh my memory. The temperature you, on the exterior, on the skin of the, yeah. of the plane? Well, I've got a good story for that. So it depends on what part of the airplane and what part of the flight, but it can get as high as 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit, but on average, it's about 500 degrees Fahrenheit at Mach 3. And the windows on the exterior are about 600 degrees, and on the interior, they're about uh, 300. So right next to my head, those are quartz glass windows because anything else is going to distort and, and, and melt. So, and, uh, so were you able to cook food? Like no, you had those little food hold on, pouches? Hold on, hold on a second. Rolex has got nothing no, on, right. on those windows, yeah, right? right? They're right. like, yeah, whatever with your – like <laughs> did you heat up your, your squeeze tube against the glass or – Well, you could, but it was dangerous because you don't have any control over it. We actually had a tube heater. Both airplanes, the U-2 and the SR, used tube food, and they both had tube heaters. The difference being in the U-2, I had all day to eat whatever. In the SR, I never ate anything. It was just too busy. Um, but one of the stories, uh, we were getting so cold, the, the thermostat broke on the air conditioner. And as you can imagine, the airplane has a great air conditioning system. Our water was freezing in our water bottles. And my backseater, Ocho, was like, hey, warm it up, Birdo. I'm like, I got it as warm as it'll go. My hands were starting to get numb from the cold, so I put them against the windows to heat them up. Because you had leather. <laughs> well, hold on. Let me just touch the glove. Oh, much better. Isn't that wild? That, that is wild. The, yeah. the inside is freezing, and the surface of the plane is at five hundred degrees. So, yes. okay. So this is a good segue because what I wanted to talk about is when you and I were sitting around the campfire, you're telling us about the suits you'd have to wear to protect you guys at that kind of altitude, and what the suiting up process was like. And I think we were equating some of this to uh, wearing a catheter when you're racing in Baja, and you, we kind of got into the suits, and then what the suits were made out of, and and there was a whole like process just to get to the airplane before you even sat in the seat. You had all sorts of things you had to go through. I it's the closest I'll ever become to being an astronaut. Um, we don't we never got anywhere near astronaut altitude, which is 75 miles, I do believe, above the surface. Don't quote me on that. You can look that up. But we never got that high. But in preparation, oh, yeah, we matched uh, the whole deal. So you you show up for work in your flight suit. Uh, you get a quick physical, meaning they're going to take your temperature, ask you if you got any problems clearing your ears, you feeling okay, all that kind of stuff. And once he signs you off, you go to your locker and you put on what we call Chinese underwear. It was just tidy whities but they were long everything was long so it was uh that same cotton uh long pants long sleeve uh, t-shirt and the underwear had a manhole in it and if you weren't going high you had a manhole cover and that was in your crop that's for that <laughs> i saw manhole cover uh they were live uh, a couple weeks ago they, oh they broke up just last weekend <laughs> uh, yeah, they? Was, yeah they had some infighting <laughs> interesting difference between the programs the u2 and the sr is the sr guys always went high and fast and we never did low only sorties we never wasted the gas u2 you had high sorties and low sorties where you would stay in the pattern so you wore your manhole cover if you had a suit on for that but anyway <laughs> um so you you go in the back you put all this stuff on and then you walk out with this chinese underwear on and this condom catheter it really enhancing your manhood. I mean, you, you, 
it, it was embarrassing like the first couple times I did it, but then you got so used to it because nobody cares. You just come out, you stand in your suit, which is crunched up on the ground in front of the little recliner. You stand in it and, and the two technicians grab either side and pull it up and over and you put your head through the neck ring and then they zip you up from behind and then they put your gloves on and your boots on and you hook up your little tube to your condom catheter and then zip that all up. And then you put your helmet on. Now, in the SR, we didn't have to pre-breathe because we weren't going high within uh, an hour after takeoff because we were fueled. But in the U2, we could climb so fast, you could get the bends if you didn't pre-breathe and get the nitrogen out of your system. So in the U2 suit-up process, that usually meant sitting in the uh, recliner for about 30 to 40 minutes uh, breathing 100% oxygen with your faceplate closed. In the SR, we sat comfortably until they were ready to take us out to the to the jet in the van. And uh, the, you, you know, you see the astronauts carry that little uh, pack. It's an air conditioning pack. It's uh, it, it's uh, liquid oxygen, and it actually pumps cold liquid. Uh, I'm sorry, cold oxygen through vent tubes that go through your suit and keep you uh chilled down what must it what must a suit like that cost or weigh i mean i bet it's not that heavy 30 pounds i bet um it wasn't that bad i yeah maybe 30 pounds uh the helmets i know cost about 150 grand back in the 90s (laughs) it's like an uh Uh, like an f1 steering wheel and you guys had the ability to have sunshades right you could flip down or flip up whether you you know based on your outside conditions Yes, we did. We had a sun a visor that that flipped down, but we also had in the U two, we had a big shade that come, came over the cockpit, and then in the SR we had what were called bat wings. They're nothing more than uh, sun visors, like you have in a car, only they were mounted on arms, so you can move them and block the sun out. Uh, but and uh, neither cockpit was that big, right? I mean, when you're sitting in the planes, you're right up against the edges of the canopy on on either of them, right? I would say both airplanes, you had about three inches uh, from your shoulder to the cockpit coming to the edge of the cockpit. So were all pilots about the same size, or could they could the uh, plane be adjusted for guys of different heights? They didn't make one for Shaq. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. You know, they're back in the day. You had you couldn't be over a certain height to to fly any fighter jet in the Air Force, and they took that out. So we had really tall guys in the U two program that flew with their seat all the way at the bottom and hunched over. I don't know how they did it. I'm kind of average. I'm I'm six foot, so I'm right in the middle. So I had never had a problem with seat height. In the SR, you lowered your seat to refuel, and then you raised it back up to fly the airplane because you needed to look. Uh, you can't with the helmet on you have limited mobility of your head so you needed to be able to look up at the tanker when you're refueling and the only way to do that is to move your seat down into the hole so it was kind of that but going back to that that was probably the hardest thing i've ever done in my life was refuel behind a a kc-135 and on an sr-71 the refueling receptacle is behind your backseater right so it's it's like midship of the airplane so you don't even really get to see it you've got to have a good operator in the tanker to be able to tell you where to be right slow down just a little bit a little (laughs) faster a little slower a little faster i mean are you playing with are you on the throttles constantly like on a boat to try and you know stay where you need to be how what made it so hard in the sr the reason it's so hard is because you you alluded to it earlier. 
um, the tanker's flying fast as he can. So his tail's way up in the air. He's point, you know, he's going through the sky, pointing nose down. I'm dogging it. I'm dragging with my nose way high and my tail down. The airplane's sluggish. As you get heavier, as you take on fuel, it takes more and more thrust to stay up with oh, the tanker. Oh, so he's rolling under the throttle ever so slightly. You know what it is? It's like uh, going to the gas station and you forget to turn off the engine while you're refueling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just constantly yeah, slow like, down. It won't, fill, it won't fill up all the way. I can't top off. Well, and there's a point where at the very end, you're burning just as much as you're taking on. And it's crazy. So you alluded to the, the backseater. He is a godsend during AR for a couple reasons. One, he can see the boom. He can see everything. He sees the engines, uh, and he can tell if you're starting to slide back before you can tell. And the, the director lights on the bottom of the tanker are, are slow. They don't respond instantly. They may now, but back when I was flying it, if you saw the light telling you were moving aft, it was too late in the SR, you were going to come off the back of the boom. And if you came off the boom in the SR, you probably weren't going to get back on. So not only was there oh, a lot wow. of pressure to refuel, you know, it was hard and there was a lot of pressure to not fall off. So Ocho, he would fake me out. He'd say, you know, we'd probably have 20,000 pounds to go. And he'd go, Berto, you're almost there. You only got five more thousand pounds. He keep, you know, faking me out, making me think that, you know, we were almost done because it is a workout. My dad did that to me once. Uh, We were hiking and uh, I was probably about 10 years old and he kept saying, there's the peak. No, no. We're walking in this canyon. There's going to be this great waterfall. And at the waterfall was a diner. And if I just kept going, we're going to have <laughs> cheeseburgers. And uh, we're like a couple miles in on the trail, and we get to this great waterfall, and I'm looking around, no diner, and he pulls out some turkey sandwiches out of his backpack. Boy, and I was like, gullible. like, wow, you're, that's the first time I realized my dad could be a dick. <laughs> so now you're saying that it was exhausting because it's just mentally stressful or, yeah. okay. Yes, mentally stressed. Yeah, the airplane's it's boosted, right? There's no, there's real no physic, physical exertion other than just the mental one, you're sitting in a hole, so you're out of your normal seating position. So your stick, the, the, your hand is way up high on the stick because you're sitting so low, and and the rudder pedals feel like they your your knees are up under your neck. But but yes, it was mentally exhausting because if you came off, if you didn't get your gas, the mission was scrubbed. You cannot fly an SR seventy one mission. Like okay, most. Training missions, guys can go out and they just take on a thousand pounds and, and call it a day. They just did it for training. In the SR program, you needed that gas to finish the mission. And in fact, when they interviewed guys, if they didn't have air refueling experience, they weren't going to make it. They needed to have air refueling experience before they could even be interviewed at the SR program. It was the hardest thing that we did. So, all right, Bert, wait, the, well, the, hold on real quick, okay. just because this is a good segue. I, I understood that that wasn't the hardest thing you ever did, Bert, from our conversation. I understood that the hardest thing you ever did was try to pick up a CD off the floor of the airplane. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. So we, well, that's different. <laughs> so the, the, the air fueling difficulty is more of a, everybody gets to see that in your hose because you get to be the guy that didn't do the mission because you couldn't get the gas. The CD off the floor was... 
um, oh man, I'm not going to get to listen to my favorite uh, Dead Mouse uh, CD on the way. <laughs> I'm laughing is so I was asking Bert about the the gloves and everything, and like yeah. how hard it was to for the controls of the airplane were they upsized for gloved hands, and and then he was talking about they would take music on missions and they'd have Walkmans and cassettes, and then we talked about well, did you ever have a Discman? He goes, we didn't take those because if we ever dropped the CD, we were screwed because with the gloves you couldn't, couldn't pick, pick them it up, up. right? <laughs> Yeah, you can't pick it up. So we. Uh, it's like I picture like a bear trying to pick <laughs> up a domino. <laughs> <Just rawr. laughs> and, and that's the noise you make, too, because to bend over, and then we're talking about the U2 now. The, it, SR, no extracurricular activity in the SR. If you looked out the window, the airplane would bite you. You couldn't even take pictures. The, the minute you stopped paying attention to the SR-71, it would bite you in the ass. The U-2, you could fall asleep for 20 minutes and wake up and go, huh, nothing's changed. So in the U-2, we carried music and things to read. And we had these, uh, we carried wooden pencils and we carried dividers. You know, the marine dividers with the little spiky ends that yeah. you put on okay why did we carry those because you could stretch them out and pick up your wooden pencil if you dropped it on the floor because you could stab it (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's this this is stuff nobody knows about nobody ever thinks about right yeah we so i gotta be careful about the youtube because it's still in business so there's some things i can't talk about sure sure. one of the things bert little earlier you mentioned you kept saying the term mission 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 what was the mission for the SR-71? Why was it created? What was it supposed to do? What was it intended to be used as? Meaning, yes, it's got this incredible speed, but how how would that uh, be our advantage over the enemy? Like, I, I'm not quite sure I understand. Just because we could get to Russia faster, I, I just – so how – when it was sold to Congress – what are they, we, this will allow us to do X, which is what? So if you think back to the U-2 program, U-2 obviously came out before the SR-71. Francis Gary Powers got shot down over Russia because we lost our immunity based on altitude alone. Okay. So I, I don't think I have to explain that if you want to uh, get information on your enemy, you want to f- get pictures of his airfields and stuff, you're either going to do it with a satellite or with an airplane. So the U-2, the satellites are problematic because they take fuel to move and you only get around, they don't, you can't put a geosynchronous satellite over a country and get a good picture because it's too high. So satellites have to orbit. So you're only seeing that country every 24 hours when it comes underneath the uh, orbit, unless you change the orbit and that burns up fuel and then the satellite crashes. So they came up with airplanes. They've always had photo reconnaissance and airplanes goes way back to world war one. Actually it goes back to uh, civil war with balloons. But um, so Gary Powers gets shot down because the SA-2 is able to go up to 80,000 feet and smack him. And so they decide we need something that can fly fast. And it's for two reasons. One, you can limit your exposure over bad guy territory. You could fly over the whole uh, continent of uh, North Korea and film it in less than seven minutes. Uh, in the SR, whereas the U-2, you're hanging out and you're exposing yourself to, so you have to stand off in the U-2 so you don't get shot down. There is no missile, uh, well, at the time, I don't know about now, because I don't know what the Soviet threats are, but there was no missile in the day that could shoot down an SR-71 because the people say, well, because it, the plane went so fast. No, the SA-5 could do mock, something like mock 
nine. It could really scoot. Oh my God. That's fast. It doesn't fly up and hit you. It flies above you and it coasts down on top of you. So if you, if all you have to do is fly faster than its energy capability and the SR could do that. So there was never an SR shot down ever, ever. They crashed. But never shot down. And there's famous, you know, whether you read Sled Driver by Brian Shule or some of the other encounters on the internet or in some other great SR-71 books that out there, there are guys who talk about, you know, finishing a, a run. So the SR-71 would go on the uh, uh, the border. They never crossed over into enemy territory. And the cameras would peer deep into wherever they had to. But they went you know, kind of skirted where they were supposed to so that they wouldn't be in danger of being shot down. But that doesn't mean missiles didn't come after them. And those guys were talking about how they would look down, they would see either fighters or missiles below, but they couldn't get up to where the SR-71 was. And they're like, well, well that sucks. <laughs> wow. Well, there, are, there are a handful of, of legacy Russian systems that can go higher. But once again, they're in a coast phase when they do that. So they can't coast at Mach 3. They're coming down. Um, the, the, the way... A surface-to-air missile usually works. If it doesn't schwack you on the way up, it comes over the top, and it, you run into its cloud as it as it blows up in front of you. That's how they're really designed to to work, and well, that just never day. worked before. So, um, and one of the things that in in the Eastern Europe scenario, the SR missions not only did they count submarines, but they also made runs straight onto the border. Uh, between uh, East Germany and German uh, Germany and East Germany, they would run straight to the border and then turn at the last second. And the reason they did that was to bring all the East German integrated air defense systems up so that other assets could listen and see what they're doing and look at radar signatures and stuff like that. And that was why it was so important to make sure your turn points were backset. Uh, there's a 75 mile turn radius on the SR at Mach 3. So take <laughs> 75 150 miles. miles to a 180. So if you started your turn too late, you would spit into enemy territory or a country that you're not supposed to fly over. So we had what was called back sets. So you would start your turn. I'd hate to um, see the uh, incursion paperwork when you landed. Right. Well, I just yeah. went into Russia a couple miles. Sorry about that. Exactly. So it was, it was interesting, and there were templates the mission planners used to 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 plot the turn radius out on the charts so that we wouldn't. And, and stateside, we did the turn radius so we wouldn't drag our sonic boom over uh, a, a city that didn't ca- that cared. Uh, and I, I looked at a chart one day, and I'm like, hey, we're going right over Lake Havasu. And uh, the mission planner goes, yeah, they don't care. They love the sonic boom. So <laughs> all the time i think it's awesome when because yeah. i i'm here in now uh, you're looking in, around in, going, where where i'm here in long beach california and every once in a while one of the jets will come into los alamitos yep. and and they i don't know what they, they they're not afterburners but they're turning on some type of uh they reverse the thrust so it's those they're are, so those are the loud. those are f-18s just kind of cruising and they're just cruising they're yeah, just, just motor and slow but Every, all the kids from all the houses pour out every single time, oh, and yeah. you all look up in the sky. They're so impressive. So awesome. What do you go through psychologically coming out of a, a jet like that, getting into your- 737? No, <laughs> getting into your J-20, <laughs> getting into your Jeep and going, man, 55 miles per hour just feels like the world is just I can't not drive 55? Moving. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to sound cliche, but it it was just, it was a job. Um 
you know, I, I took flying lessons when I was 16 and I remember, uh, I was flying, I was learning how to fly a Cetabria and I did not have my driver's license yet. And, uh, I remember that was more of a difference in getting in a car and an airplane than it was working in the air force and flying all these different jets and then getting in a car. But once again, uh, no sensation of speed per se, but uh, sure does feel nice to get the spacesuit off, especially in the U-2 after the, my longest mission was nine and a half hours in a spacesuit. Uh, that always felt nice, but no, n- nothing really to wrap your head around when you just jump in the car and go. It wasn't like you instantly tried to drive like 100 or whatever, although in the U-2 program, we did get to drive 100. I went to 150 in a Camaro uh, because we chased the U-2, uh, your mo- they called them mobiles. And as, as the backup pilot, you mobiled your U-2 guy who was on a mission, and you caught up with him in the overrun and accelerated and talked him down. So uh, that was so for Lightning, who's looking at me perplexed, essentially, and there's How a bunch dare of you, a bunch, except for that was true. Yes, a bunch of awesome videos online. So uh, the U-2 crews, a uh, pilot drives a car, usually something really cool, and talks down the U-2 pilot because they can't see – where the runway is when they're coming in, and so the the car is talking to the airplane. So it's another pilot. So 12, 20 feet, 15 feet, yeah, 10 feet? Yeah, okay, until they it. touch down. Yes, that was an extremely enjoyable job. I loved driving that. We had Camaros when I was in. They they had Mustangs, 5.0 Mustangs before that. I think they had Grand Prix after. I don't know what they have now, but they were automatics because you couldn't shift and talk on the radio at the same time. But uh, I wanted to see I was thinking about buying a Camaro and I wanted to see how fast it would go. So I told the tower I was doing a runway check and he's like cleared. And I just (laughs) hammered it like top gear style. I hammered down at one end of the runway until I couldn't stand it anymore. I got to 150. Uh, It was climbing ever so slowly. And I just nailed the brakes and stopped. I I had plenty of room at the end. I could have gone further, but I didn't know. I didn't know how far. (laughs) Permission to buzz the runway (laughs) in a Camaro. (laughs) That was a great job being out there on the mobile. It was a lot of fun. So what was your favorite airplane to fly, the U-2 or the SR-71? Or were there things about both that you enjoyed? There, You know, each airplane throughout my career has its... It's fun parts and it's not so fun parts. The U-2 mission I enjoyed. It was relaxing uh, compared to the SR-71. But the camaraderie in the SR-71 program I enjoyed more because everybody was excited to be there. Everybody was excited to see you because that meant they had a job getting the airplane ready. And those guys spent, I want to say, six hours for every one hour of flying time to get the SR-71 ready to go. They had to preheat the glass for the cameras the night before. They put it in a special heater, and then right before you step to the airplane, they installed the big quartz glass panes on the chines where the cameras set, so they wouldn't distort when the thing got hot. Uh, there was just – both airplanes were fun. The SR was probably a lot more complex and busy to fly versus the U-2. The U-2 was hard to land. The SR-71 was easy to land. Um, they they each had their pluses and minuses. The B-52, that was uh, a challenging airplane, but it was a crew airplane. Now you got six people that you're in charge of. Uh, but – you know, each airplane, F-111, get to fly. I flew Mach 1 
as a Wizzo, I was in a pilot, Mach 1, 400 feet off the ground. So that, did, did you oh do the God. Did you do the awesome F-111 fuel dump where you can put like this 100 feet of flame out the back of it? Only the Aussies could do that. <laughs> it was illegal in the Air Force. If they caught you doing that, it was a court-martial. Oh, okay. So for people who don't know the, uh, the Aardvark, the, uh, the F-111 or the F-111, the thing that was cool about those is that their fuel dump went between, I guess, the two engines. And so, light. so if you dumped fuel, it would shoot, and they do every once in a while. You'll see a video, or they'll do it at air shows. So they'll dump fuel, and it goes right into the exhaust stream and lights like a hundred feet of flame, like a flamethrower behind it. it looks awesome. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, the closest thing we did that in the SR seventy one was air, air show tracking. So when the SR seventy one would do an air show. It would usually come across the field high and give the air show spectators the double sonic boom. And the the way you would pick it out in the sky is you would dump fuel for one second. So remember, it goes a mile every two seconds. So half mile long <laughs> fuel. It would make uh, I remember that as a kid at March Air Force Base in Riverside yeah. when yeah. the SR seventy one did the air show. And then the cool thing about the SR-71 was after the air show, after it landed, they brought it in to basically the, um, you know... Like um, a paddock? Yeah, well, yeah, not paddock, but the flight line where everything was, and they put stanchions around it, and they had armed guards, but the plane that just flew by would be there on display, and they'd have signs where it said basically, you know, we're authorized to use force. Um, the only two planes that I ever saw at the air show where you couldn't get up close were the B-1B... And the SR-71, they had their own crews around it and, and, and centuries. Um, but it was so awesome because I remember that as a kid at an air show when the SR-71 and, and seeing it in person where the, the sonic boom was like, you know, I think I probably looked at my dad and was like, America's great. Now, wait, <laughs> so explain to me going Mach 1 400 feet off the ground. That Now now you've got a speed, sensation of yeah. speed. This is not 80,000 feet. This is like in the movies when we see it go over the ocean and there's a wake that comes up, right? <laughs> there is a sense of speed at 400 feet off the ground at Mach 1. Once again, though, it takes a long time to get to Mach 1. It's at Well, we were at Nellis when we did it. So I don't remember what the desert floor is out there, 2,000, 3,000 feet or so. But um, it takes a long time. But, yes, you do see the sagebrush whipping by pretty quickly. But as I mentioned earlier, when he pulled it out of afterburner, my head bounced off the glare shield from the deceleration. Oh, damn. I was looking yeah. at, um, according to SR71.us, which is a pretty good archival site for a lot of things SR71 related. If anybody's curious how exclusive the SR71 program was, there were only – 486 people to ever fly inside an SR-71. How many SR-71s it, were there? It, hold on. And only 477 of them went above Mach 3. That includes that includes RSOs yes. and all VIPs. So uh, the, the number that I'm proud of is, and I'm pretty humble, but this is a pretty proud number. There's only been, uh, I wrote it down because I never knew this, 143 pilots ever. I mean, that's that's an exclusive company. And there were, what, 30 airframes or something like that? 32. And, and they lost 12. So there's a couple. That, so the the SR-71 came out of the CIA Oxcart program, which was the, the A-12, the precursor to the Black, still Blackbird, but it was a single-seater. And then the SR-71, so there's the A, the B, and the C model. The A model is what everybody remembers. The mm -hmm. B is the trainer. There are only two of those. Uh, and then the C, I believe, was called the Bastard. Is that is that right? 
you know, you got me on that one. I didn't even know there was. I know there was a couple built that didn't have the J fifty eight. They had different motors in them, but I don't. I, that so, I don't know. Okay, so look up SR seventy one C or the bastard. Apparently, two crashed SR seventy ones. They mated the back half of one with the front half of the oh, other, and it right. flew in yaw all the time. It was never straight, <laughs> so they called it the bastard. That could be true. I do remember hearing something about that. They did that to U twos too. U um, twos are notorious for ground looping on landing because they they can't. It's a it's a sailplane with a jet engine. So if there's any crosswind there's a point where the pilot just has no control anymore. And it, there's a song, you know, that um, I, I'm trying to, is it Puddle of Mud that does She Effing Hates Me? Yeah. Yes. Puddle of Mud. <laughs> wow. Puddle of Mud so, reference on the truck show yeah, podcast. I like that, don't you? Not it really. brings me way back. <laughs> Go pull that and you will see a YouTube video from with that song in the background of all the YouTube ground loops. It's like a montage. And, <laughs> They, the airplane would get bent, so they would kludge together different airplanes to put one together. Um, there's been tons of U2s. Not, I, I don't know the number. They're still flying, but uh, a very fragile airplane, the U2. What, what did the SR-71 cost us as, uh, as good old taxpayers? In, in 60, 1960-ish dollars, I think it was $35 million. A piece still a bargain so today yeah. 350 would, million yeah. okay still a bargain yeah considering that you know some of the fifth generation fighters how expensive those guys right. are right you had told me some anecdotal stories uh one of them with the u2 when you were uh in the persian gulf i'm just curious one anecdotal story that's a little humorous that can put a human spin on both the sr-71 and the u2 can you tell one story from each airplane that's that we would get a get a laugh out of? Okay, well, I'll start with the SR. So, you know, I was at that squadron flying the T thirty eight around every day in the SR detachment two out at Edwards Air Force Base, and we every day we'd go over to NASA because they had the simulator and they would train me in the sim, and I would do engine starts. I do all the procedures. I do climb out and acceleration and deceleration to near refuel, but you could simulate everything else. And the very, my dollar ride, the very first ride in the airplane, um, it's a B model. It has NASA on the tail because they had the B model at the time. We're out doing our, you know, engine start, which was amazing. I mean, I was all giddy. And then we get out, we taxi. Edwards has that huge taxiway. We taxi out. There's all kinds of vans and trucks following us. We get out, um, do our run-up check, and then we get clear for takeoff. And when I brought the uh, throttles up into afterburner, I thought the airplane exploded. I literally thought, because the simulator doesn't simulate that. It was so much of a punch that I I started to bring the thrust lever, the throttles back, and Gil Luloff, my instructor, was like, no, 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 it's good, it's good. That is how incredibly hard those afterburners light on that airplane. They light one at a time and not together. So when they light... If the left one uh, lights first, the nose swings way to the right until the right one lights, and then the nose swings back to the center line. All it's got to be not- so scary. <laughs> oh, my God. Like I, mean, st- I wasn't crapping my pants or anything, but I was like, holy crap, did we just blow up? 
and Gil's like, it's good, it's good, go, go. And oh he's like, go where? I'm on fire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh. Baby Jesus, the, the, the invisible flames, help me, Oprah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's the, uh, you know, I mean, I've got a handful, but that's pretty much the God's honest truth of what it was like the very first time he flew the airplane. It, it was very violent. Uh, and then the U-2 um, let me think about that one. Uh, I've got the one where I fell asleep for 20 minutes and then woke up to the sound of a guy saying, sir, sir. Uh, <laughs> that's a pretty good one. That's a, that's a pretty good one. Hey, I've, I, I want to loop it back to, uh, to, Oh, I want to hear the story. Okay. All right. We got to hear the story first. Real long missions over during the, uh, Bosnia conflict, uh, we've taken off out of Sicily, flying across Italy. Actually, we had to go around because of whatever political reasons. But going up and down uh, the coast over there by Bosnia, and just nothing's going on. It's just an easier plane to fly. It's on autopilot. It just does its thing. And I, just like in Homer Simpson when he's driving and he dozes off, you know, I just hear somebody talking to me, and I realize I've been asleep. And we had data link and the guy's like, sir, coming up on your next turn point. And I'm like, oh, crap. Oh. And I woke up and I looked down at my flight plan and I had missed three turn points. Uh, but the airplane's on autopilot. I just flew itself. That between that and an airplane almost exploding as normal in the SR, those are the two big differences between the U-2 <laughs> and the SR. The SR-71 uh, was very... Uh, intensive the u2 was a pussycat wow i'm exhausted just hearing that like i you i can hear the fun and the stress in <laughs> all, that in that job wow. awesome okay so let's loop it back around to your to your jeep and your and your new overlanding adventures what's next for the jeep or is this like um check in the box and now you're going to build something else like so what what's new what's next for bert I was thinking about that because I figured that may come up. I, what I'd really like to do with the J20 is I'd like to you know, take the tranny and the, uh, the, the uh, transfer case out and either uh, get them rebuilt or put some new ones in it. I've got a, a center force clutch for it. So th I'm not just checking the box. Uh, it's going to get moved back here to Ohio in uh, May. Uh, I'd like to do some winter camping with it. But it's, you know, it's an heirloom. I'm not going to get rid of it. I'm not going to sell it. But I would like to keep it viable. I'd like to be able to pass it along to my son or, you know, his son or whatever. So it, it needs a tranny job and a, uh, it needs uh, the transfer cases leaking. Drive shafts probably need to be balanced. You know, just stuff like that. Everything else on it is fine. But I do have a, actually a 77, I said 78, but it's the 77 Cherokee Chief, and I have a new old stock body. Whoa, nice. I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know this. Back in the day, in the 70s, if you crashed your Jeep, the insurance company would pay to fix it instead of totaling it. So in Toledo, there was a guy, his whole job was to warehouse and and manufacture crash replacement parts for Jeep uh, CJ5s, Wagoneers, Cherokees, J trucks. And I ran into this guy on eBay and he invited me out and I 
saw this crated Cherokee chief body, and I said, what do you want for that? He's like, $2,800. So like, it's I, mine. You're done. Yeah, done. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm like, do you got, do you got frames? Do you got what? You know, he he didn't. He was. I I met him at the end of his game. He used to have wiring harnesses, fenders, oh, steering wow. wheel, instrument clusters. He made all his money in the CJ5 world because people. He was selling brand new old stock CJ5 tubs. That was it. Was called four by four Jeep parts, I think, out of Toledo. Because, you know, the, the plant is still there in Toledo, and they made the Jeeps in Toledo at the Jeep plant, which is now um, making, I don't know, I, I, can't, I think they make so, the... Uh, yeah, right. Wranglers and Gladiators. I, I drove yeah. uh, Lightning by there on our way back to Detroit from a recent Very cool trip facility there. Yeah. 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 So I, I go by it all the time. I used to go by it all the time, but uh, you know, they always they have that little mountain out on the corner with something. That's parked. where yeah, we went. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. It took like, yeah, they right have a right little mountain that. goat out there too, I think. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a project that um, I would like. It's going to be a resto mod. Originally, I wanted to just bring it back to uh, concourse style, you know, 1977 Cherokee cheap, but you can't. There's so many unobtainable parts for that truck now that I'm thinking of doing a resto mod on it, and I would really like to put a diesel in it, but we'll see. We'll see. So that's one of the projects. Um, but no, uh, Dad and I will probably, if they have Overland East and they don't make us wear freaking face diapers, we'll probably go to that. <laughs> well, I, I'd uh, love to, if, uh, if, if we end up in the same part of the country, I'd love to go hit the trails with, with you or you and your pops again, because that was a lot of fun. and. Love to uh, love to share a campfire again in the future, Bert. Absolutely, I really enjoyed our talk that we had, and um, there's a lot of stuff I, you know, if if we could reverse the tables, there's a lot of stuff I'd like to ask you, like that new freaking Dodge that I have to have, but I won't be able to get. You're talking about the TRX, Ooh, the one that we drove oh. here today. Yes, we did. <laughs> oh, I shot video. I'm going to be posting it on our <laughs> Facebook here. I've got so one right now. Stay tuned to our Truck Show Podcast Facebook for that video. Yep. Everybody is like. That's a waste. Why would you want that? It's like you. Why would you want it? Why would engineering, you not want it? technology, awesomeness, adrenaline? Well, because it's probably going to be one of the last oh, freaking for trucks sure. you're going to be. I, I, I called it in my story a love letter to enthusiasts because it really is. I just uh, we just had four no, love letter to the internal combustion engine. I thought. Uh, well, love letter to enthusiasts because of the, the engine, see. yeah. So I just did a 6,300-pound truck, did the uh, 0 to 60 in 4.3 seconds repeatedly uh, and consistently, and did the quarter at 12.92 uh, at 109 miles an hour with uh, with wind. <laughs> okay. That's all cool, and I like all that, but I want to know how it jumps. How does it jump? Uh, if you go to my, uh, my Instagram, there's some uh, – uh, some I think there's some jumping stuff in there, and then there's a whoop section that I did in slow motion, and watch nice. that suspension work, and it's uh, it's nice. amazing. I'll I'll give you a call, uh, and then you can hear it accelerate uh, on my way home. How about that? Oh, you're driving it now? Right now? Oh, I literally have. He literally <laughs> picked me up at my house an hour and a half. How long have we been talking? So twenty <laughs> minutes longer than this call is is when I got picked up, and, and it's this beautiful blue TRX, yeah. Yeah. and nice. I, and 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 so my wife is asleep on the couch. She had fallen asleep there last night, and I tippy toe by her, and <laughs> and all of a sudden, and, and I knew Holman was outside because I hear this. 
<laughs> and I'm like, you're going to wake up the light. I just, and I bolted out the door and I fired up my camera and I ran all the way out like a giddy school child. I was like, oh, he's got a TRX. He's got a TRX. <laughs> it was pretty cool. That is, that is the coolest vehicle. I mean, wow. I, I, if I could come up with the money, I would put a pre-order in for that thing. That, well, uh, we'll, we'll talk about, we'll, we'll talk about, I'll, I'll give you a call. And if you have any questions, let me know. But uh, and I'm serious. I I would love to love to share a campfire with you again, and uh, really, really appreciate you taking so much time because I think this is one of those special things where if you're a gearhead, you're a gearhead, and to to have access to somebody who has uh, done what he's done. It's, it's some of the most amazing machinery on earth. If you want to follow Bert on Instagram, fsj underscore overland. Uh, he's got a bunch of cool stuff with the old J20 in there, and um, what a treat! Thank you so much. Thank you for letting us catch up with you. Sean and Jay, it's been a pleasure. Anytime um, I could talk for hours. I know uh, us too. The time <laughs> that we got to shut it down, but it's uh, it was a pleasure. Anytime, my friends. All right, we will we will speak soon for sure. Yeah, I'll I'll uh, I'll see if you're around this afternoon. If you are, I'll uh, I'll let you hear me on a couple of uh, TRX runs. Okay. Right. <laughs> Thank you, Bert. Right. Thanks, Bert. Yeah, you guys take care. All, All right, right, you too. Talk to you soon. Holman, we need to have a beer with uh, him. Like, that's just, uh, that's out of control. Yeah, he's uh, pretty amazing. You've already I, had a beer with him. I have. Uh, sat around the campfire. It was great. I'm hoping to do it again. All right, email time. You email. Yeah. I email. Do it. We email. That's right. Everybody email. Type it up. You email. Proofread. I email. Send it. We email. Click it. Everybody email. Another one of our uh, childish jingles? No, these are all professional. <laughs> Love every one of them. Like well, my that, uh, that one guy left us a review on uh, Apple Podcasting. Oh, those guys have childish jingles and whatever. Like, yeah, yeah douche. Yeah, of that's course what, we do. Of course we do. That's Why our, wouldn't we? That's our signature. Uh, come on, listen. It's a great balance. We have experts that are far more knowledgeable about trucks and mechanical engineering we're here than to we are entertained. And listen, we're having fun, dude. Come yeah. on now. Yeah, don't take leave, a chill pill. Don't leave one and three star reviews. Stop that. Only leave five stars. Just stop that. You don't need to. Just go yeah, make what? fun of Yeah. Wait, we bothered you enough that you took time out of your day to tell us how bad we are? You think that affects us? You think we remember your name, Dave? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do. It sucks. Like, dude, don't do do that. Look, listen, we're here. We ain't getting paid, you know? And this is we're we're doing it for the I'm not gonna apologize. Just stop it. Give us a good review, damn it. <laughs> All right, how about you read some inbox? <laughs> Another non-modified F-150 from Corey Tull. Oh, I have a feeling he's sarcastic there. <laughs> Why? Oh, damn it. Hey, guys, been listening since around episode five. I guess you could say I'm a long-time listener. Joking, lightning. Long-time listener. First-time caller. Okay, Tom, keep reading. Tom like is KFIA of 640. Love the show uh, and hearing about the products out there to make my truck to take it to the next level and constantly keeping me broke. Yes, that's what we do. We keep people broke. I'd love to hear from a camshaft manufacturer like Comp Cams, who's arguably, I guess not arguably, one of the best names in the business. Sure. To talk about how the EPA is affecting aftermarket cams now and in the future, I have my eye. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. How the cams are going to- Because ever since cam phasing came out, people don't really focus on cams anymore because they can do it with tuning. It'll be interesting to see how technology has altered that market. I have a friend at CompCams. Well, you should call him. I am going to call. Okay. Uh, I've got my eye set on a 2014 to 2016 Silverado 1500 6.2 liter gasser in the next couple of years. I currently own a 2009 F-150 5.4 liter. That's the Triton, right? Yep. With a CompCam 
intake, a custom tune, and Bill Stein's. Just another non-modified eh. F-150 on the road. That's a burn on me. Burn! Yep. Face. I Face, yeah, everybody. Yeah, you uh, like that, don't face. you? Face I reference. I say that all the time, uh-huh. yeah. I purchased the truck with about 50,000 miles on it at around 60,000. One of the rocker arms decided to seize up, causing me to have to replace both cams in my truck. Hence, the new comp cam. Pigs attached, me in the engine replacing the cams. Uh, thanks, SSG, Corey Tosso. Corey, yeah, that is a very nice F-150. And I love the fact that it's bone stock, not modified. So I will get my buddy. Uh, I'm going to try to get the head of engineering at Comp on the on the horn. You should do that. All right. All right, got one here from uh, Brad Ballou. That sounds like a... Uh, Ballou, I'm, would you say that's Ballou? Let me, uh, where are you looking here? Yeah, that's Ballou. All yeah, right. Yeah, Ballou. All right, go it, me. Wasn't there a, uh, a Baloo? Isn't that a like cartoon character, Baloo? He was a big blue bear. Okay. All right. Uh, dear Lighting, Holman, and esteemed colleagues. We um, don't have any esteemed colleagues. By the way, the um, uh, subject matter is Pandora's Box, a.k.a. the F-150 mod debate. Okay. It seems you two have opened up Pandora's Box. It's going to take your listeners' help to close it. After uh, one other listener submitted their research on last week's show, I thought I would compile my own data and submit it and help prove once and for all who was right about the F-150 mod debate. I encourage others to submit their own findings so that we can put this mystery to bed. Prepare to be blinded by science. These findings were taken on a work run from Kalispell to Missoula, Montana, and back again in one day. Hmm, small sample size. Very small. All right, so here's here's the breakdown. And in Montana, of all places. He saw 369 F-150s. Excuse me, what? 50 out of hey, wait, them. Wait, wait, wait. Go back into how long is this trip again? One day. 350 of 50 them? 50 of them were work modified. Company sticker on the door, specifically modified to a certain trade with toolboxes, roof racks, et cetera. 87 of them were lightly modified, mostly stock, but at least had a topper, tonneau, toolbox. 63 which, by the of way, them Which, by the way, I still don't were count. Not I still don't that, count as modified. We're not doing this. Yeah. 63 of them were obviously modified, aftermarket wheels, lifts, and or multiple appearance mods, extra chrome, decal, etc. 169 of the 369 were stock. So, he goes on to say, so, if you look at it as all mod levels versus stock, it would give Holman the edge with 200 out of 369, or 54% of, of F-150s being modified, or would it? If you only include the obvious mods, which is what it seems Lightning is referring to, he would be declared the winner with only 63 of 369, or 17% modified. So, do you think I've got enough here for a grant? <laughs> he says, and while I have you, I'd like to place an order for a new five-star jingle combo. Five-star! Review! Five stars! Congratulations, you have earned five stars. A side of parameters. Master, monitor, key, engine, parameters. And an OG, yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. To wash it all down. Keep the shiny side up and the pointy side forward. And that's from uh, Brad Ballou from Kellyspell, Montana. So, Brad, we appreciate your research, especially me. And, and I'm glad uh, I won. And I'm uh, hopeful that other listeners will chime in on the uh, mystery that is the modified F-150 percentage. That's right, is that uh, most F-150s are not modified. Uh, that was 54% in my favor. Nope, Thank that you very was much. 17% in my favor. Nope, That's modified right. is anything. No, it's not. It's not work trucks. It's uh, enthusiast Go modified. and keep reading. Enthusiast I, I, You said modified. that, not me. Go ahead. Hot Dr. Pepper was once America's holiday drink of choice. Is the subject line... From Ozzy. Sean, I thought you would get a kick out of reading this article. Hear us out. 
And I did. So he sends me a link to the matadornetwork.com where they have a uh, article entitled, Hot Dr. Pepper Was Once America's Holiday Drink of Choice. And I figure being close to the holidays and, hold on, uh, drinking a Dr. Pepper myself. It was almost hot, but I threw it in the freezer out there. And it sounds like it's empty. It's close on, to it. it. It's close to it. Oh, yeah. uh, that I thought this would be a fun little read. So um, this article goes on to say that... Uh, Heating up one specific type of soda, Dr. Pepper, was once a favorite holiday tradition. It says advertisements for hot Dr. Pepper began popping up in the 60s in spreads that featured a cheerful snowman enjoying a steaming cup of the beverage or in a black and white commercial that featured a happy couple setting up Christmas decorations before boiling a pot of Dr. Pepper topped with lemon slices. According to Serious Eats, Dr. Pepper devised the drink as a way to keep sales booming even in the winter months when the sales of cold drinks tend to slump. And uh, at the time, Dr. Pepper apparently boasted that the drink would help you, quote-unquote, swing right into the holiday mood and called it a, quote-unquote, distinctive winter warmer. Uh, since its advent in the 60s, the drink has waned in popularity but is uh, still has a stronghold in Texas and parts of the southern U.S., and the Dallas News once called it a treat for generations of Texans and one Californian. Hey, uh, marketing folk at Dr. Pepper, pay the man! <laughs> Damn, we talk about Dr. Pepper a lot. But it's delicious. I know, but... Uh, so if you're, if you're curious, um, it says here that according to company lore, uh, the then president of Dr. Pepper Company, Wesby R. Parker, came up with the idea in 58 while visiting a bottling plant in a blizzard, and he went home to experiment with different methods for serving Dr. Pepper, ultimately figuring out that it should be warmed, not boiled, so the soda doesn't burn. He added lemon rind for extra flavor. And uh, so if you want to try it yourself this holiday season, please uh, please let me know. The story goes on to uh, call it the ultimate cold-weather drink and that it's especially good with its good friend bourbon. So, Oh, uh, yeah, there you go. I'm going to be uh, toasting all of the Truck Show podcast listeners with a warm Dr. Pepper and bourbon myself, and I will be... Wishing holiday cheer upon all of you. It's very generous of you as he drinks the last sip of this. Oh, so good. Now empty Dr. Pepper can. Big rig content uh, from Randall. Hey, it's Randall Heckathorn. First off, I need to let the people know that y'all need to keep sending in your what's that note. It's uh Know your note. Know your note. So Holman can finally play the one I sent in almost a year ago. Is that true? <laughs> have we been sitting on one for a year? Uh, I, I think we've, we have, yeah. What? We've done Know Your Note more recently than that. Yeah, but I think there's some that are buried in the past that we need to pull Oh, we should archives. absolutely do we that. We need so, more, here, Here's the thing. Know Your Note. you got a couple ways. Here's what, here's what Know Your Note actually is. I thought it would be fun if you guys recorded audio and sent it to us of your exhaust or your engine. I prefer the exhaust. I think it's cool. And uh, we will then guess your engine and the vehicle it's in. I think we prefer a truck, if at all possible. Makes well, it unless more you're fun. trying to mess, you know, mess us up. So, uh, yeah. So we've, we've had, we, a, we've had, had a, a 2JZ uh, Tacoma. We so. did. So, and we had a, oh, remember we, we had, had a, weird stuff. We had a oh, Toyota yeah. that had a, Just a, a screwy situation. Yeah, so here, here's the way that you can get it to us. You can record it on your phone and then email it to us, truckshowpodcast.gmail.com. Or you can call the five-star hotline at 657-205-6105 and leave it in a message for us. Now that I've got that taken care of, I think I want to discuss something a lot of people will be interested in. I'm a 25-year-old truck driver in Central California, Turlock, California to be exact, and I drive a 92-379 straight-piped. 
She's my baby, and she's as strong as ever. I think it would be really cool to get some Peterbilt content in the works. Maybe find someone who could talk about the ever-growing deaf debate, or someone who could talk about uh, the coming 389 updates. If it's possible, we can keep these discussions more around the long-nosed trucks and not those aero trucks that are absolutely disgusting and uglier than lightning. <laughs> hey! Damn! Harsh! Yeah! <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm not attractive, but... Yeah, okay. So I love what you guys have been doing so far, and I look forward to every episode. But I've been noticing that the topics have kind of shifted to some more smaller vehicles. I'm happy to help in whatever way I can to get some more 18 wheeler content on the show. Thanks. And I look forward to hearing from uh, y'all and see what happens. So, I, I mean, it's not the, I know it's called the Truck Show Podcast, but it's not. So, truckers call the, their trucks trucks, yeah. right? And, and there are trucking podcasts for And semis. there are trucking podcasts. We'll touch we, on it if it's, if it's interesting. We, we'll do anything. We're not one of those. No, we, but we'll touch on it. Look, guys who we drive- a lot of truckers. Well, hold on a second. This is something that truckers, I think, it bugs them that they we call pickup trucks trucks because trucks are big trucks. No, not at all. No, every but, one of those guys has a uh, heavy duty whatever when they leave the semi. That's what they drive as their, as their daily. But I'm saying that the term And they listen truck, to the show. Right, I get it, but the, the term truck- at one time, you're doing one of your stream of consciousness things where you're just sort of like inventing a problem that doesn't exist. Really? Yeah. I thought that the term truck was reserved for big rigs. No. And those are pickup trucks. Okay. <laughs> All right. I feel like you're you're inventing a problem that doesn't exist. Trucks. I thought th- we're the truck I, show. If it's semi, if it's a pickup, if it's cool, we, but we're not. A, we don't know anything about semis. But we have listeners who do. Okay. I just think we have no business and we have got, dipping our toes in that. 657-205-6105. Share some knowledge with us. Truckshowpodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear about semi-trucks. We don't know anything about Oh, yeah, them. absolutely. By all means, please, yeah, call us and, and school us for sure. All right, got uh, one last one here from Jason Gaynor. Uh, it says, love the show. Hey, guys, love the show. I've listened to episodes 1 through 22 and 136 through 151. This seems like a weird spread. That's odd. Plus, all the Gale episodes. Look forward to the podcast each week and listen as much as I can while working uh, or working on my truck. I have a 2019 GMC Duramax Denali. I found the podcast looking for overland ideas. I surf fished the Outer Banks in North Carolina and camp in the back of my truck. It is leveled, and I have a camper shell Dometic 75 fridge on a slide. So it's modified in, in uh, parentheses. <laughs> also, I've installed a Klein onboard air system, multiple USB outlets in the bed, and zero-gauge wiring with quick connects for my winch. Trying to decide on which tires are next, thinking BFG KO2s, Ridge Grapplers, any suggestions? I told my 7,500-pound wake boat and 5,000-pound tractor fairly frequently. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the BFG KO2s. I'm also a huge fan of the Toyo Open Country AT3s that just came out. Great, uh, great tire. Because of your podcast, I'm obsessed with whatever DEC's new product is. I will be getting a DEC system in the next few months, but I want to know what the new product is. I will sign an NDA and embargo <laughs> it if you tell me to. I check their socials daily now. I also have an 06 LJ on a two and a half inch lift and nice. AB Pintlers that I crawl malls with. Not really. I don't go to malls. Just cruise around. Never thought I would listen to two Southern Californians this much, but you're all great. Uh, keep up the good work, and I love the shows. Five stars. Five star review. Five stars. And keep monitoring those parameters. Master monitor key engine parameters. It's funny. He says I spelled that that way on purpose, and when you listen to it, it does sound like she says parameters. Parameters. Yeah. yeah. I doubt you're still sending shirts, but I'm a large, or I would even buy one. Uh, that's Jason from Winston. Store.motortrend.com. Yep. Store.motortrend.com and yes. go in the search bar. Truck Show Podcast. You got it. You're a truck guy? Question mark from Lars. Holman and Lightning. 
How have you not heard of Chassis by EHA? Well, that was me. I hadn't. Um, this was the guy that apparently built the custom chassis for Stanley with the lower 2016 right. uh, Chevy Dually. Yes. You're a truck guy? B.S. I read about them in trucking about 15 years ago as a 12-year-old. <laughs> the story I recall was a few uh, tech articles about a 67 Chevy pickup being built for a baseball player. Then the truck was on the cover, if I remember right. It's a cool truck. I'm sure I have the magazine somewhere. Keep up the great show. Five stars. Five star review. Five stars. Lars. Thanks, Lars. He's all, well, always at, a prolific emailer. Dude, we appreciate him. I, I haven't heard about everyone doing everything. I mean, <laughs> you haven't? On. What? Some chassis guy in, oh. in the 626 area code in Southern California here making cool chassis. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, what? Sorry. Well, uh, apparently, uh, the suckage meter is now pegged, so we should mm-hmm. probably end the show. Yep. Well, we'd love to hear from you. Truckshowpodcast at gmail.com. Truckshowpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can always call the five-star hotline. The Truck Show. The Truck Show. The Truck Show. 657-205-6105. He's at LBC Lighting. I'm at Sean P. Holman, and we are at Truck Show Podcast. And we appreciate and love all of our listeners. Thanks for tuning in week after week to hear us... uh, Talk about everything truck and a lot of things not. Yeah, we do a lot of <laughs> little too much food talk, a little too much big rig talk. No, not too but much. But not I enough airplane talk. Clearly by today. I could have gone for another hour oh my God. with uh, Bert I, Garrison. I wonder if anyone tuned out. They're like, I don't care about no. planes. No? No, every one of them was like, this dude flew three, Mach 3, 2,200 miles per hour. Like, it's my hero. 2,000 <laughs> miles per hour. <laughs> I mean, come on. Two miles in a second. Yeah. Two miles per second. And think about it. Before you jump on us and say that's not a truck, the thing's cargo was 80,000 pounds of fuel. (laughs) So it can haul. Yeah. More than uh, just ass. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Well, you know what else can haul? Nissan Titan. That's right. Check out the Nissan Titan or Nissan Titan XD at your local dealer. Head over to NissanUSA.com where you can build and price and pick out your truck. The Nissan Titan and Titan XD have the industry's best warranty, five-year, 100,000 miles. And if you're looking to fix all that stuff rolling around on the bed of your truck, it's time to get yourself a decked system. Those are twin rolling drawers, buttery smooth, and you can put 2,000 pounds on top. So whether you're carrying like you've got dirt, you've got uh, a quad, or dirt? you want to camp. Yeah, they get a ton of dirt. You, know, you imagine like, uh, get all those little cool ammo can storage things in the corner filled with dirt? That would suck. No, no, it's on on top. I'm saying they could. Oh, yeah, you wouldn't want to put dirt on top. Well, I mean, whatever. you could, yeah, but you could. You, I, you'd need a good vacuum cleaner. I'd rather have a motorcycle or a quad in the back, something cool like that. Yeah, or you could camp on top. Yeah, or haul dirt. Or haul dirt. Yeah, I don't know why I said that. Sorry. <laughs> I would take that back if I could. All right. Well, if you're uh, overloaded on payload with all sorts of junk on top of your deck drawers instead of in them, like dirt. Uh, you may find that you need some new brake rotors, <laughs> head over to DuralastParts.com where you can find the Duralast Direct OE Replacement Rotors, which offer a smooth, quiet stopping power and has a design that mirrors the OE physical characteristics, or step up to the Duralast Gold Rotors design that also mirrors the OE, but has a Z-clad zinc coating that provides rust protection and long life and eliminates pre-installation cleaning. These rotors also have up to 11% more carbon in their formula than other rotors. So with their increased stopping power, do you think they can put a halt on this runaway freight train? Uh, I don't think anything can stop this show. (laughs) Yeah, this is unstoppable, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Your friend Bert was outstanding. You, on the other hand, were less than impressive. Ah... 
what? She sort of has a point. Ah, true. The Truck Show Podcast is a production of Motor Trend Group. This podcast was created and produced by Sean Holman and Jay Tillis with production elements by DJ Omar Khan. If you like what you've heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. If you'd like to open the show, leave a message on the five-star hotline, 657-205-6105. And if you're a fan of the Truck Show Podcast, we encourage you to visit and patronize our sponsors. 